So does that mm. mean this should be called whole music? Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> if that is the synonym they're using throughout. Uh, yeah, well, mm. I don't think it would have sold as many copies. If Hold, as many, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Hold as many copies. Hold as many copies. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing soul music. Please note, I've made a sheet music joke, but I hope it doesn't fall flat. And our guest is illustrator and author Fury. Welcome, Fury. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you here. Now, we always like to ask our guests how they got into Pratchett. Can you tell us your story? Uh, I actually can't remember. It was probably my brother. Uh, I followed him around and did all of the things that he liked in my early years. Uh, but Pratchett's definitely one of the ones that stuck. Um, it's probably one of the ones that I feel strongly about because my brother was really the music person, uh, this book anyway, sorry, soul music. Um, but I can tell you a great, so I went and saw him speak when I was probably like 12. Uh, he came to New Zealand. Uh, New Zealanders famously, I don't know if you know this story, you probably do famously. He really liked New Zealanders because he heard about, uh, one of them breaking into a bookstore, stealing all of the cash in the registry and one of each of his books on the shelf. <laughs> and he, I've not heard that story. That's great. He loved it. He was all about it. So, um, yeah. So he was very pleased with that story, but he came, he came and spoke, uh, uh, at, um, the Auckland town hall, wherever it was. And, um, I remember being very excited and going along and, um, hearing him describe, so journalism back in the day when he first started, uh, journalism was more like an apprenticeship and he got offered, um, sort of a junior role and he was still in school. And so he was sort of umming and ahhing about it, but he eventually decided to become a journalist and he was on his way. His first assignment was going to cover a guy who had fallen down a well. Um, and he was on his way there and he's like, well, this is a lot more interesting than geography. Was and- it Timmy? Pardon? Was it Timmy? Uh, I, I, I genuinely don't know. But, uh, well, so he, he arrived and, uh, um, they pulled the guy up out of the well and his, the way he described it was this guy was dead. I mean, this guy was seriously dead. You couldn't be more dead without professional training. Um, and I remember thinking, Oh, that's just how he thinks. That's just his brain. Like all of his books is just how he processes the world. Um, and so, yeah, so that was sort of my introduction. That's sort of where my, uh, Pratchettian roots came from, but I don't, I don't know what started me on him. Just sort of what I remember of that time. Mm, that's cool. I mean, I, my brother got into this world, I think through me, which was a bit of a coup because he, he was not a reader. He never read anything, mm. but he does read Terry Pratchett. So I, I think the sibling route is, is a good one. Mm. Well, if you're a y- younger sibling, certainly. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> I'm assuming yours is older. No, my my brother's younger than me. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he he got into it through me. So right, uh, which is about the only thing that he got into. <laughs> me. Everything else is like, oh, you like it? I'm doing something else. <laughs> which is that's fine. 
Can you imagine if you'd done like a journalism worthy thing in your life, sad or happy, and the person who was sent to report on it with Terry Pratchett? <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't know who he was at the time. <laughs> but like just the tone that I assume he would have taken. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, for, for your first, for your first, um, uh, piece. I don't. I don't imagine he would. He was the person that he would then become. But uh, very true. I yeah. imagine certainly towards the later end of his career <laughs> and the pieces that he would have written. Oh dear. We should dig some up. Yeah, I would love to read that. Yeah. I don't know how much of that early writing is available. You can certainly read some of his early children's stories. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I wonder if any of his early. We'll have to find that out. That would be quite interesting. Surely there's like a microfish. There will be log somewhere. Yeah. One would one would imagine. Yeah. A nanocarp. <laughs> a nanocarp. Sorry, microfish. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I, I'll pay that. That's good. I'm, li- I'm a little bit unwell, so I'm not sure if my jokes are up to standard or if they're better, in fact. Oh, well, I mean, that just went right over my head, but I appreciated it once it was explained. So. Actually, it would go under your feet because it's a fish. <laughs> fish. Yeah. yeah great. I, think, I think the puns are uh, only enhanced by the phlegm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. Well, look, uh, perhaps we should get on to discussing the book. All right. Are we? How do we feel? Before we get into it, though, how how much do we feel like we're music fans or musicophiles? Are we cool people? I'm definitely not cool. No, me no. either. Liz? I, I missed like as in, like, I, I was like, there's jokes here that I'm not understanding, but mm. I know they're jokes because mm. of zeitgeist and just you know pop culture seeping into things. But yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm pretty cool. I was forced to do piano lessons for most of my life, so you know <laughs> that's how you define cool. Excuse me. <laughs> you could be the next Ben Folds. I could be the next librarian. Oh, yeah, true. Uh, actually, there is actually one quick story I should tell before we get into it about mm. the origin, possible origins of the book. Um, when we were at the uh, Discworld convention uh, recently, one of the attendees wanted to tell me a story because he's never been able to figure out if it was true or not. Yeah. He got told that a bunch of people tricked Terry Pratchett into going out for a, a dinner and a drink with them. Uh-huh. By getting him to sign, because he would sign anything famously. Yeah. That's why we used to call him fan circles, someone who signed way too many things, Pratcheting. Uh-huh. But he, uh, they, they got him to sign a document that said, I promise I will go out with, <laughs> with you for dinner. Because um, he said that he was interested, but he, they couldn't nail him down to when he was available. So yeah. he signed this thing, they made him go. Um, and so they, and this was genius. in Melbourne. Absolute genius. Yeah. What a great they, way to have a nice time with someone. I know. It's contractually <laughs> obliged. Yeah, it made you it. legally obliged to come with us. <laughs> but, uh, but then they took him to the old Valhalla cinema, which is now the Westgard cinema, which is one of those cinemas that it's like a cult cinema. And they used uh. to do like 24 hour sci-fi marathons and audience interactive screenings of things like, you know, Rocky Horror and the Blues Brothers. And suppose they took him to an audience interactive screening of the Blues Brothers. Yeah. And he'd never been to one before. Huh. And it gave him the idea to do. Soul music. Amazing. This was the story. Now, I don't know if it's true. This guy uh, was trying... He's telling me that he was, he'd, he'd lost track of the guy who told him the story, so he's never been able to go back and Double talk check. to him and, yeah. and check if it's true. So if any listeners out there know this story, anyone from the old school Terry Pratchett fan days, maybe if you were at the convention, maybe you know who this guy was talking about, we would love to hear from you to find out if we can corroborate that story. We're putting it out there to find out if it's possibly true. Um, it, it's also, I mean, because it does also sound like the sort of thing where people would assume that was the case, whether or not it was true. Yeah. Um, and it would have been one of Terry's fairly early signing tours, because mm. I don't think he started traveling around signing books until the early 90s. And this book is from around that time. So, you know. Or it could be one of those things that people vaguely remember happening, but maybe it didn't happen, because truth is whether you believe in it or not. Ah. Very Pratchettian. Mm. Well, interesting question. Where would you, if you had uh, a signed contract from Terry Pratchett uh, that he would hang out with you one time, where would you have taken him? 
Ooh. I don't think to a cinema necessarily unless it, things were really awkward. Yeah, not my impulse either. Yeah, because you wouldn't get to talk yeah. very much. I mean, it's cool, but like, yeah, maybe archery, mm. if that was a vibe that seemed to be uh. good. Because you can talk, but you also get to do an activity if the talking is awkward. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. That's well, not why I do archery, but as in like, that's just a good A good option. place to take him. Yeah, and you get to shoot things. Yeah. I'm sure he would have appreciated that, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I get the impression he would have done some archery. I mean, this is a man who had his own sword forged out of meteorite yeah. iron. Like, yeah. you know, he's he's onto the old school stuff. Yeah. I think he would have dug some archery. Yeah. Surely might have, must have done some. Plus, like, the Melbourne archery has this wonderful surreal element that is right next to a puppy training school. <laughs> that couldn't possibly go wrong. It seems to be working so far, but, like, <laughs> one of my friends did have to chase, like, a dog... Like that was running onto the archery field. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> what do you want? This <laughs> is not ideal, but I mean, they survived, so it was a good Saturday. Okay, few. Again, very Pratchettian. Yeah, so I feel like that would have yeah, maybe nice. been my my choice. Okay. Um. I mean, I it, it's I don't know what I where I would take. I mean, I probably would. Inv- I think I did invite him to see a play that I was putting on because <laughs> I had a genius stroke of marketing when I was doing Mort. Uh, uh. I tried to make sure it was on just after I knew he was coming out uh. for a signing tour and I fly at all of his cues. So we sold it out, even though it wasn't necessarily the greatest production of Mort ever made. It was pretty good, though. Very um, bright. So, yeah, I think that I, I invited, I think I'm sure I invited him along, but he wouldn't have still been in the country and probably mm. he would hate it. <laughs> like, yeah, but yeah, probably. You don't want to see a bunch of like first and second year university students like performing a play based on one of your beloved novels. Yeah. Um, I would absolutely love to see that <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd written a beloved novel. That is something I would want to see. Well, that's true. I really hope Ridley Scott has seen that recent German high school production of Alien. I'm sorry, what? Have you seen? You got to look it up. It's amazing. Like oh the costumes God. and everything are off the hook. Oh like, my gosh! Yeah, just, just Google it. It's good. Where we'll would put you a link in the show notes. Well, my first impulse was like, there's this great little bar that you in the, in the town in Melbourne Central, uh, where you it's like you almost like you walk into a car park and the door is completely unnamed, uh, and so you just have to know where it is and you open it up and it's like a 1930s prohibition style um, bar, which I think he would have really appreciated, um, like leading him down this alleyway and him being convinced that I was about to murder him and then open him up to this sort of magical world. I think that that's the sort of thing that would have given him a kick. But if it was like, uh, so I used to go to the world championship jousts every year, um, which are held in Taupo in New Zealand. Um, it's okay, Ben. <laughs> ben, we can go. It's all right. <laughs> that took Ben by surprise. It was it was the tea. I swear, it was the bad tea. Um, and so, if it was like pie in the sky, then I'd probably have taken him to one of them because I think he would have fucking loved it. Yeah, I want to go to that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, we used to get a crew every year and and go down. I haven't been, you know, since. Is it for, always for in Uh Well, it was. I, as I say, I haven't been in ages, but um, it was for a very long time um, in in Taupo. Um, uh, so I, we were sort of went sort of three years in a run in a row or whatever, and it was just it was just a really wild time. I wonder if he surely he would have gone. Well, he did like he likes things like that. He, yeah, he. I mean, they just. I mean, I see they're much more a dime a dozen in in the UK. Yeah. Well, there's um, there's a lot more like medieval stuff there. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> should we read the blurb? I think we should. <laughs> Let's start with the blurb. Other children get given xylophones. Susan just had to ask her grandfather to take his vest off. Yes, there's a death in the family. It's hard to grow up normally when grandfather rides a white horse and wields a scythe especially when you have to take over the family business 
and everyone mistakes you for the tooth fairy, and especially when you have to face the new and addictive music that has entered Discworld. It's lawless. It changes people. It's called Music with Rocks In. It's got a beat and you can dance to it, but it's alive and it won't fade away. Oh, it's good. It's a good blurb. It is an excellent blurb. It is. Although, and straight off the bat, I've got to say, I don't know if I noticed this when I was reading this originally, but I should have, is that we've got this weird supernatural person and with a granddaughter named Susan. This is a Doctor Who reference, 100%. Oh. Surely. Because the Doctor's granddaughter is named Susan as well. Um, And she's also a bit otherworldly, Susan, and a bit interesting in how she interacts with her school and doesn't quite fit in, which also is very much like Susan from Doctor Who. So I suspect Pratchett was a big Doctor Who fan. Well, apparently there's a whole bunch of Doctor Who Easter eggs in Good Omens. Oh, yes. Um, But yes, this is is where it begins. Um, Well... It's where the blurb begins. <laughs> the story doesn't it's begin. It's where there. it begins when you pick it up in the bookshop. Yeah. Uh, and this is one of those rare things, a Discworld book that really feels like it's a sequel to a previous story mm. because it's all, it, it, a large part of it is about the aftermath of what happens in Mort. Mm. I mean, that's where Susan comes from. Obviously, that's her origin story, but also um, the consequences of death turning the lifetime is upside down. Mm. But it's a book that sort of, well, it starts in a previously on, which is unusual. Yeah, that is really, uh, it is unusual. I mean, we've had this in Lords and Ladies. Mm. Um, we kind of, we didn't really get it in, it's just done through the text in Men at Arms uh, and most of the other books where some of the backstory is relevant. Mm. But in this one, yeah, we do get a little bit of a the history section at the start. Mm. Gives yeah. us the bones of the story. Yeah. <laughs> of course <Terrible>. it does. <laughs> Um, and where we start then really is with is with a death, as so many Pratchett books begin. But this time it's an off-screen death mm. pretty much. Well, sort of. I mean, it, the scene is described, but it doesn't tell you specifically who has died. Uh, and we do go to the scene of the, the incident later on in the book. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's Morton and Isabel going over the cliff in their carriage. Mm. And they, they're not ever in the book as living people. They're only talked about in memory, which seems a bit harsh well they got their own book they did yeah mort got his own book isabel just got to be in it true yeah yeah like her name's not on the cover which is kind of like her life mm. i think oh. yeah rough yeah. um do we how do i mean we talked we talked about this we did an episode it was one of our very first episodes talking about mort and we had pretty clear feelings about the romance and the relationship in that book how do we feel about how it's all ended? I feel like I like Mort even less in this book, even though he's in it not at all, really, because everything that reflects back over it is him restricting the people in his life from doing what they want to do. Mm. And I don't feel like, like if that's what, if if there's been a conversation, sure, but it seems like. It's not Morton and Isabel, the unit, making decisions. It's Mort putting his foot down, which is blatantly said, and assumedly Isabel going along with it, which has deprived Susan of time with her grandfather and deprived death of time with his family. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm just like projecting into that, but that was the vibe I got through here. Because like, there's a great sadness in death through this book, and I assume that's because he's grieving the loss of his daughter and his family. Mm. As a big part of it, but he's also grieving 
the time he hasn't had with his granddaughter that comes through quite sadly throughout the book and it seems like a lot of that is Mort's fault. Yeah, and it does seem like a big attitude shift. I mean, because there's that gag at the end of Mort about how how do you feel about grandchildren and he talks about having bony knees and whether that's a problem and that's mm. kind of gentle and nice. But in this book it seems like for whatever reason the two of them have just been no way, like we want to give our daughter a normal life and not, you know, with the Grim Reaper. And I wonder if that's because they've gone back to the real world and are living normal lives and they realise how, you know, kind of weird and awful it is to be around death all the time. Well, I think as well, like, so much of it is enforced onto Susan. Like, Mm -hmm. she doesn't even really remember her grandfather. That's how long ago that it happened that they made that decision to remove him from her life. And so it's it's kind of interesting in the sense that uh, she then sort of gets foisted into this role um, retrospectively. Like it's interesting from a narrative point of view because it's almost like coming into this inheritance and sort of trying to make sense of yourself and your identity in a variety of different ways. Um, so for for Susan, it's really interesting. But yeah, it, so hearing you say that, I have I haven't read Mort in a really long time, and when I did read Mort, he reminded me a lot of my brother, mostly because he's described as looking a lot like my brother and the way that he moves oh. as though he's got more than uh, more than the regular amount of joints yeah. and like especially when my brother dances that's exactly what he looks like <laughs> so i just like basically shopped out more and put in my brother um so my feelings towards him are not probably accurate so it's interesting for me to hear that that um uh, that interpretation i enjoy more the goober like, mm. I'm not to call your brother a goober. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's an affectionate term. I think it's okay. It's an affectionate term. No one also, ever says that in anger. Probably one that I would apply to my brother as well. So. Okay, yeah. so who else's relatives can I insult? Um, <laughs> but as in, like, I enjoyed, I found that part of Mort very charming. Mm. And when I, so I think on my second read for the podcast, when the, that side of him came through that was a bit darker, it took me, it was harder for me to accept that. And mm. I just feel like that part of him was cemented for me in this book because you don't have the charming Mort at He's all. He's not there to defend the, himself either. Yeah, but you, his but, echoes, his impact yeah. basically are not good things. Yeah. Mm. And um, I feel like that says something. Yeah. 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 And Susan as well is not really mourning their death so much as trying to figure out you know, her relationship to her grandfather the whole time. And that's quite a powerful thing. Like she kind of knew where she stood with her parents. Mm. Um, and she's like, she's more, more upset about, uh, Impy Holly's, um, uh, death, uh, than she is about like the concept of her parents dying. I mean, I, albeit like when she gets confronted with by that, it's right at the end. And so she's sort of done a lot of processing, but, She's, she seems to have very uncomplicated feelings towards the death of her parents, in my in my opinion. Yeah, mm. she just sort of accepts it and, and moves on. She yeah. doesn't seem very sad. Although, I mean, there is a bit later in the book where she cries a lot, and I wonder if that's where sort of that emotional weight of that has caught up with her. Yeah. Um, but she spends a lot of the book basically being death. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it is kind of – well, to me it's a book about the different ways you cope with grief. And mm. hers could be – and, and I do not believe in the five stages. That's been very much – debunked Mm. but hers could be viewed as a kind of a denial or an acceptance because in the back of her mind death has been a constant companion because of Mm. her grandfather Mm. so she doesn't see the point 
in getting sad about it because it is an inevitability. Mm. So it could, it might not be an indication of her relationship with her parents. It might be an indication of her relationship with death, the concept in general. Mm. But also, like coming yeah. in, like becoming death, and the emotional shifts that she would have to. Uh, like her, like physiologically, as much as you can say of this world, um, the the way that that will be shaping her attachment to the world and to her emotions and her understanding of time and space and whatever. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she just sort of accepts the fact of it, mm. um, which is, you know, it, it, that's very in keeping with her general attitude. She's super practical, not very sentimental. Um, Plucky gal. Yeah, well, more so than that, you know, like she she really is just like, I don't feel things the way other people do, you know, mm. she really comes across that way. Uh, and she just like looks at a lot of the stuff that we take for granted as, you know, quote unquote, normal human business and just goes, that's very silly. Mm. And you're like, fair enough. <laughs> like, mm. okay. And even on the disc world, you know, she refuses to believe in a lot of stuff, which we know is real on the disc world, mm. uh, because she thinks it's ridiculous rather than because there's any evidence to suggest it's not real. Mm. And then there's also her parents are nobility, you know, Mm. they're upper class twits (laughs) essentially now. You know, she was born when they were quite young, although probably what you would expect a fairly normal parenting age to be in the Mm. kind of pseudo-medieval society that the Discworld seems to be. Also young and old considering the facts that the time has Mm. stopped for Isabel. That's true. So she, we don't, I, I don't think we ever said specifically how long, She's no. been 17, but for a very long time. Yeah. Or 16, or however old she is. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, for her, you know, she's been sent off to be at a boarding school. Mm. She doesn't see her parents very much. She doesn't live with them anymore. She mm. doesn't see them on a regular basis or not for very long. And that kind of in- implies that sort of. Implies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Uh, but that that's. <laughs> No. Uh, <laughs> why? But it, but it does imply that kind of distance that you see in that sort of standard upper class parent child relationship. Mm. So that, that might be a factor too. I don't know. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, but look, we don't even meet Susan immediately. No. Um, the first person who turns up is death, quite appropriately, in a book that's around him. Although, like, like the other death books, it's largely about him not being there. Mm. Like he's very, he's hardly in it. And I, I always feel, I, I enjoyed this a lot rereading it, um, but I also felt a bit like, why is this a death book? Like, it's a Susan book. Death's barely in it. Mm. That's the case with any of death's books. Yeah, except Hogfather. He's in Hogfather quite a lot. True. Um, but he's just not doing his own job. Mm. <laughs> he's doing somebody else's job, which is fine. These early ones particularly are all about what happens when death buggers off. And in this case, it's like, well, he's got someone else who can step in mm. for him. Um, but yeah, he, he goes back, he's watching Morton Isabel and he says, yes, I could have done something. And I think, and I think that's the other thing that makes me question what is the relationship Isabel and Mort have with Susan? Because she does feel like, why wouldn't you have done something about this? And it's hard to know if he, if she feels that way because of her relationship with her parents or from what she perceives her grandfather's relationship is with them. No, I think that's very much to do with her sense of justice. Mm. Uh, and her sense of rightness and fairness in the world. Um, cause she's, when she's doing that job and the old man dies and his, his kids are awful, she's like, well, this doesn't make any sense. And then she has to go and, uh, you know, sever, um, Holly's 
time. She just refuses to. It's like, no, this makes no sense. Hmm. So I don't think, I think it's more about her trying to make sense of the justice of the world and the injustices of the world than it is about her relationship to her parents. Because hmm. she says under her regime, it's going to be like, the good people live longer and the bad ones die mm. young. Like I, can't, I haven't got the quote quite right, but she has a, a vision of how it's going to be when she's yeah. a bit of time to think about it. Yeah. yeah which that, I guess suggests that she thinks her parents are good. Or at least that they didn't deserve to die at that point because the yeah. whole reason they die then is because he's turned their lifetime as upside down, which means time. they only get as much time again as they already had, mm. which is 16 years. Mm. So they have to die when she's 16, they're, you know, 32, 33. Mm. Uh, and that's a, that's not a long time. Mm. And that's quite young to lose your parents as well. It's mm. pretty rough. And she's like, why, why couldn't you do more than that? And he's like, that's not how it works. Mm. Um, but it's interesting that that's the thing that she keeps. Cause whenever you hear death talk about justice, he's, you know, his famous line is there is no justice. There's just us. Mm. Or there's just me. Mm. It's and interesting though, because they did they they knew that they only got sixteen years, didn't they? I think he kind of implies that at the end of Mort. Um, I don't know if he specifically tells them, but uh, yeah, I think I think they know. They, but they know. haven't prepared anything for her, as in like I'm not saying they should have like sat her down and been like on this day or like or in this year this is going to happen, but like you think you'd. I don't know. Maybe that's why they sent her away to boarding school, like to make it a bit more distant, make it so she's not reliant on them. But Mm. more like when it's over, like you, like there's a letter or something that comes through, or I don't know. Maybe that comes in later. I just feel like, but also maybe death altered their memory. True. So they they don't know, and they wouldn't know exactly when or how. Presumably, they wouldn't have wanted. I don't think they would have wanted to know that. Mm. Um, Yeah, which is rough. I mean, you know, knowing makes things a lot easier Mm. or Um, harder. Mm. Well, I, I think if you know for 16 years, that makes it maybe a bit harder for a long time. But mm. then in the long run, like for everybody else, makes it a bit easy. Like, you know, mm. like when people have a terminal illness or a condition and they know they're going to die and everyone gets a chance to say goodbye, mm. it's still awful, but it 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 makes it easier. Like certainly in my experience, it makes it a lot easier to deal with than if somebody dies suddenly and unexpectedly. Mm. You know, it's still obviously sad. You still need to grieve and, and go through that loss. but you have had a chance to make your peace with it and not just on your own, but with the person who's going to be gone. And I think, but that's like making that choice and knowing so far in advance, that's, that's tough. And for, it's different too. Like um, when it's about, you know, I'm, we're going to die and our daughter's going to have to grow up without us. Like that's, that's rough. Mm. Yeah. That's hard. Anyway, that's, uh, that's pretty, Let's get the music with rocks in it. On a down note. Uh, <laughs> but then um, we we do meet Susan pretty quickly um, through her boarding school and through Miss Butts. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny and so dumb, but so funny. It's just, it's just, it's the kind of name you expect someone to have at a boarding school. Is Lally Butts as well? Like, it's her, like her full name, like later it says her full oh, yeah. name. Yeah. It's a good name. They've all got such good names. And also like the way he rides boarding schools. Is just so like, so I went to an all girls school, mm. uh, and the way that he writes it is exactly how it is. <laughs> um, especially that comment about girls who can't tidy their room but will happily spend three hours brushing a horse. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, you know, this, like, you just 
he has this, this incredible empathy and understanding of people regardless of where they come from. Mm. And there's kind of like there's as much judgment as there is lack of judgment in the way that he writes people. Um, and so, yeah, that especially was just <laughs> so enjoyable to read. Yeah. 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 Like it's equal opportunity excoriating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, it's interesting because in, in Pyramids he so nails what, an all boys boarding school is like. Mm. I mean, but it's also it's a direct parody of Tom Brown's school days. Well, there was Enid Blyton vibes to this as well. I thought, yeah. Well, it's a bit jolly hockey sticks with a bit more blood and thunder. And I love that she's so good at sport to the stick because they're like the scythe. Yeah. Like I just love that so much. <laughs> well, yeah, particularly a hockey stick's a bit scythe shaped. Mm. Yeah, lacrosse. <laughs> yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that as well. And she's not at all sporty except for that. And she's like, why doesn't anyone pick me for teams? I tell them how good I am and they don't pick me for teams. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting the way that she moves. So I've been uh, looking at uh, my own context and whether or not, chewing on whether or not I have autism in some form. And it's interesting reading this again because, like, she's, she reads to me as someone who may be on the spectrum at some like in some way and also, like, death as well, uh, the way that he just doesn't get people. It has these aspects that are like... Oh, to read it in hindsight, but especially like, why aren't people picking me? I tell them how good I am. Like that just feels like very like, mm, okay, sure. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Let's see if we can retcon this in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, and that attitude she carries throughout her life into the other books as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, which, <laughs> and I, I love her for it. I think it's one of the things we all love about Susan so much is that she refuses to put up with the nonsense of other people, mm. um, whether or not that's something she's choosing to do or it's just how she is. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, but we also learn that she's inherited a few things from her grandfather. She can just make herself unseeable. Mm. And it's, it's that kind of unseeable. It's not, she's not literally invisible. It's just people don't notice her anymore, which is a classic, very Pratchetty idea, but also a very Adamsy idea, like the whole somebody else's problem field kind of theory. It's very difficult to make something invisible, but it's very easy to make people ignore something. So yeah, I, I kind of liked that, but also the, kinds of things that she's writing about and thinking about at school and the sort of things that she thinks is a waste of time, mm. whereas, uh, you know, compared to the things that she thinks are actually useful. Well, it's interesting the slap on her on her cheek as well because that's mm. like this great comment, I guess, on intergenerational trauma mm. and how we inherit that sort of thing because, like, how do you inherit a slap? Well, I mean, you, you can and you do. Mm. Um, and that's only something that I think science is catching up to and recognizing um, because it was well after that, that I, you know, there was sort of research into, um, Holocaust, uh, um, pe- people who, who are the, and the, um, descendants of Holocaust survivors and the intergenerational trauma that they actually carry with them, uh, physically in their, in their genes. Um, so yeah, anyway. Full on. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that was what Pratchett had in mind. No. But I but, think it's really interesting how it, it is a really good representation of that in a way. But I think that, I think that's part of how Pratchett sees things in a very, uh, like almost sort of prophetic sometimes. Um, like obviously that's him picking up on something and writing it in, but maybe not even understanding how true it is of, of humans and how we, how we function. Mm. And it's kind of like her holding on to more hang-ups about death as well, in mm. a way. So, yeah. Let's talk about Imp. Yeah, because we also meet our other protagonists of the book. Imp is Selen, 
um, who I, I love all of the sort of Lamadosian words. I'm not going to try and pronounce it properly because I, I got, did learn it once. I got taught, yeah, by a Welsh person. It's like you got to let the air come in through each side of your tongue. Yeah, Lamados. Uh, I, I did when I was in university. I was studying King Arthur. I learned mm. how to pronounce Welsh because a lot of the primary or close as close to primary texts as you can get mm. about King Arthur are in Welsh. Right. Um, so you have to know how to pronounce all the words, and it was great. And um, and I went to Wales once, and all of the signs are in Welsh and English. It was really cool. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I've forgotten half of what I learned about it. I I, I kind of vague, vaguely remember it, but I I loved all of the words. I think he's very clearly, and this is a question I think that we got, but I think it's very clear that Lamados is Lamados is um <laughs> is meant to be Wales. Or yeah, the, and it's funny because Wales. Wales is traditionally a very musical place, and mm. yeah. Mm. So and where druids come from, it's very mm. Celtic. Uh, he's not a druid, he's a musician. <laughs> yeah, he's not a druid, no, but there <laughs> are a lot of druids either. there. <laughs> no, he's a bard, which is also a very Celtic tradition. True. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And, and uniquely it, Welsh as well. He has a, look, we should mention too, um, we have, I, I have uh, listened, I've got the soundtrack to the animated version of this, which is great. And yeah, he definitely has a Welsh accent. Yeah. He's great. I kind of, I kind of liked him a lot, but then he, sort of loses all his character. That's because he dies. Because he's basically dead, yeah. Because he's just the music. Yeah. Yeah. Which is real. It's real rough for him. Does but. he even lose the double L's? Because I tried to look back over that bit when he, because he doesn't talk very much after the, after his timer runs out. And I was like, did his accent go as well? I think it kind of, because I certainly remember noticing it when it comes back late in the book, like when mm. he, he is talking about home and his own music. Not that I know of. I was listening to, um, I was listening to the audio book. I didn't do the reading of the actual book. Um, I don't know. Didn't think about it at the time. Yeah. I they, say. Was it a Welsh accent they gave him? They did, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely, nice. they did. Nice. It's just like as soon as his time runs out, that's when he changes his name and that's when he ceases to really have a personality mm. as well. And I was like, oh, why is he boring now? I'm like, wait, because he's dead. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's literally a music zombie now. Yeah, a music zombie. Yeah, yeah. But he's he's got very – I mean, he, I think – I mean, we're all creative folks. We can uh, really kind of appreciate Imp's dream. He wants to go to the big city and make it big uh, rather than stick around with all the old-fashioned fuddy-duddies in his home who make beautiful music but nobody ever listens to it mm. or nice thinks it's special. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was There was no megalith joke in this one. I was disappointed, mm. uh, but that's okay. But, yeah, so he, he's, he's going to go off and make his fortune and make more pork and he comes to the big city and he's thwarted by the musicians' guild, yeah. <laughs> which is like an interesting. I, I had a lot of feelings about this. Uh, I've been a member of the Actors Guild for twelve years now. It's a long time, and I, in all that time, and and I, I'm very happy to support it because it is an industry. And music is another one where people have very much been taken advantage of mm. um, where people uh, are exploited for their love of what they want to do and not play paid adequately, but also where it can feel like you're forgotten. If you're not one of the famous people, you're not doing something that's part of the mainstream industry. Cause like, you know, I've been, I've been paying my dues for a long time and I've had one job where I've been paid rates because it, all the stuff that I do is not really covered. Mm. And that's just, that's kind of a quirk of, where my life has taken me more than anything else. But uh, I certainly don't feel like they're like, you can't work here unless you pay our money. Mm. Um, but that's what the Musicians Guild is like. What a bunch of jerks. Mm. Have we ever encountered a, a Mr. Cleet? I personally have not. No. 
So I feel quite fortunate and I hope I continue to not. Yeah. I mean, I worked in government for a long time. So I encountered people who sort of came close to it. Uh, people who sort of were quite happy with the way things were and would sort of adamantly uphold them even though they made no sense and uh, changing them would be of benefit to literally everyone. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, occasionally, but no one as quite as distinct um, as sort of Mr. Cleet. But also I think that um, he's a great commentary on, you know, just sort of classism in general um, and how, I mean, Pratchett talked about that. Um, it has had it on his mind at several points. You can, you can see, um, when he was talking, I think it was in one of the Vimes books about, um, the boots, about the boots. Yeah. So he thinks about this stuff, about the way in which structures keep, keep people out and keep people away from doing the things that they want just because that's the way that they're sort of set up. Um, yes, but not, not personally so much. Good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm happy for you. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I have either. But I, you kind of, I mean, he is representative of that person who is a bureaucrat first and foremost mm. and is not really interested in the thing that mm. they are bureaucratizing but is more interested in the system and keeping the system running. And we've talked about how he's worked for different guilds, so he doesn't really yeah, care where he is. It's just about it could be anywhere as long as the books keep saying the same thing and the, like the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You were saying before about taking advantage of people people's vocations essentially. And um this book I remember the first time reading reading it feeling really pleased for Dibbler. Because yeah. this book, more than any, Dibbler comes into his like like it's a space that he was made for. Mm. It's it's like the most Dibbler he it's peak Dibbler, essentially. Mm. Yeah. And reading it again, I was like, oh, no, this is actually a lot darker than when I first... I was so happy for you to find your niche. But now I just see that you're absolutely just, you know, so horrible. The worst. Just Just the worst. Yeah. I just, like, left, right, and center, like, not even giving an inch. And, like, of course, of course the music industry uh, is, like, that's the perfect place for you to take this to the nth degree because it's exactly what um, a lot of the music structure, up until, you know, um, fairly recently when um, the internet sort of came into the game and and shifted the power dynamic um, execs and whatever um, had all of that power. But um, yeah, Diblo is so satisfying in this book to see to see how his brain works and how that sort of set up and, you know, how that ticked over was really pleasing to watch. Yeah. And it felt like quite an accurate representation of the <laughs> so dark parts accurate. of the music industry. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, to compare it with something like Moving Pictures where he becomes a movie producer, yes, he's also doing it there, but he it's such a collaborative medium that he can't quite take total control. I mean, he interferes a lot and it's just like all the stories you hear about every film where there's been you know interference from the studio but um but it's still at the end of the day there's you need 100 people to make that film whereas when it's a band it's like you're really just organizing the money aren't you which gives you a lot of freedom to take as much of it as you can Mm. yeah so it it felt uncomfortably real (laughs) Mm. yeah and they didn't have a gas boat on their side no yeah Mm. no they didn't uh but uh when waiting to see if he can join the Musicians Guild, this mm. is where Imp meets his future bandmates. Mm. And I, I love them so much. I'm so sad that we don't see more of them in the other books. But Glod mm. and uh, what's, Lias? His, what's his? Lias, yeah. It's his original name. Um, I, I, they're so great. Mm. Mm. It's a classic dwarf troll pairing. Mm. Yeah. 
it's kind of like got Lord of the Rings vibes as well. And I like that they specifically say that they set out how if they were all in their natural environments, there'd be enemies, specifically Imp mm. and Lias, because they're like, oh, if I have to go home, I have to be a druid. And then mm. Lias like, if I have to go home, I have to go bash some druids. Yeah, and- that's right. Yeah, we don't take kindly to people who drag rocks across <laughs> the country <laughs> and turn them into calendars. Yeah, but, fair enough. But they don't because they're all musicians. Mm. And so they they are the same for those purposes. And then they're like getting along and then since someone's harp gets squished. Oh yeah, that's yeah. so sad. Yeah. Made me real sad. Mm. Oh. And it's the way they describe it is such a beautiful like you don't you don't get that much of it. Like you don't see it that much, but just the way he describes the harp mm. really just made me go, Oh, and mm, when oh. they go off to have that first meal together, I'm like, oh, they're nice friends. I just read a book of them being friends with each other, which I know would be pretty boring, but like I kind of liked it. Yeah, I, and I love I love that Glod is a callback to a footnote mm. in I think it's sorcery where he talks about how there's that curse and there was a you know like a effectively a typo in the curse. So instead of everything you touch turning to gold, <laughs> it turns to Glod, <laughs> and so there's all these dwarfs named Glod, and uh, he's Glod Glodson. So he's like he's descended from one of them. I thought that was great, <laughs> and I don't know that I caught that when I was first reading it. But I love that. I love the other dwarfs' names that you hear. Like his old band was Snorri Snorri's cousin and his brass idiots. <laughs> like that's such an old school name. I love it. Mm. Uh, but it's very yeah, it's real cute. Glod, I think is he's he's fucking steal a term from uh, Will Kostakis is is possibly my MVP of the book <laughs> apart from Susan. I just every time he talks, he's just gold. Also, yeah, there's so just so like. Yeah, and he's he's the first blowjob joke of the book. Um, and then the next one happens within like a few pages. There's like a bunch of them. It's quite rude. But yeah. What's the blowjob so joke? So he's like, he can blow anything is the thing right. that he says. And th- this is when they meet because he's like a trumpet player. And then Imp's trying to be polite. He's like, oh, I get to- that must make you very popular. <laughs> <laughs> In musician circles. I'm sure that's what he meant. And then there's that other one where they're talking about the sports mistress always, always sort of saying, get some ball, like you, mm, you soft, mm, whatever. Mm. And then the other one's like, and then he talks about, the, the troll talks about how they used to have a sport where mm. they kick a person's head and then like, get some head like this. Maybe we won't say that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, it, it reminds me of a story from when I was in primary school and uh, I'd just seen Spaceballs. And there's uh, there's a bit in it where uh, John Candy's uh, character, who's like the Chewbacca piss take, uh, says, give me, give me some paw. And I was at school and we were all doing stuff like that. And I was like miming like, as a joke, like, let's like clonk our heads together as like a high five situation. And I said, give me some head. And I was like 10 I, or younger. I didn't know what it meant. Um, but apparently my friends had some inkling because they thought it was hilarious and <laughs> awful. And uh, they did not explain it to me. I was very innocent as a child. <laughs> and that was also pointed out in the comments that I was like, is it just me that's reading into this? But there's like a lot of them. Like mm. I was like 50 pages in and there's a lot of it. Yeah. Well, you know, sex, drugs and music with rocks in. True. Mm. You know, you got, you got to have the Trinity. One out of three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. they're all about not. Well, I mean, I guess blood blowing can blow anything, but yeah, they just there's no sex in it. Yeah, even Susan and uh, Imp's sort of connection is it sort of feels vaguely romantic, or like vague, like obsessive in sort of like a weird She's way. She's got a crush on him by the end of the book, but it, yeah. it, and you know what? The way if we had a few comments about it, which we'll get to when we talk about the questions, and I was sort of waiting for it to happen, and it happens really late in the book. Yeah. Like she seems much more interested in his situation than in 
him mm. for most of the book, but then kind of from repeatedly meeting him and he infuriates her so much that she's like, who is this guy? Mm. And then she's like, he's kind of cute. And it like gets a bit of crush going on, but only towards the end of the book. But even then, I think you could read into it that it's it's not, not necessarily no. that. What I really love about it is the fact that it doesn't happen, that they don't yeah. get together. And you just, in popular culture, when someone has a crush on someone else, it's always they get together. And there's something so refreshing and nice in the fact that she kind of has something for him and then it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And I feel like the attraction is only there when he's, quote unquote, alive. Mm. So, like, there's that mm. brief moment before he's supposed to die on the stage and then he's like the music zombie, and mm. then there's not really that attraction. There's just her mission, and then when he's back to being properly imp again, that's when it comes back mm. a little bit. So maybe it's that. I don't know. Yeah, she likes she likes the the real man, not the music golem. Yeah, not the music golem, <laughs> <laughs> not the not the fame, not the fortune, but yeah. the actual person. Yeah, which is that's which is nice, and that's I could nice. see that's Susan's deal. Like yeah. she's not going to be blinded by fame and excitement. And she's not affected by the music with Roxanne either, really. No. Mm. But then you would hope not. Yeah. That's because she's got Ridcully vibes as well. Like, they're both like the cranky, True. like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is this is where we get to the impetus for... Impetus, hey? Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, no. Uh, what I I'm stealing, I'm stealing Liz's thing. <laughs> oh, sorry. How dare. Uh, but this is this is where, you know, they sit on... Uh, Life sits on the harp. It gets crushed. They need a new instrument if they're going to play, even though they've got to play in, like, illicit non-guild venues so they can get away with it without being members so they go to a shop to try and find a new instrument and mysterious a course, shop a mysterious little magic shop which is you know very much called out as a trope in this book mm. and a glorious one at mm. that uh and they buy this mysterious guitar um which which rocks uh and it's it's yeah and and then they play their gig in the in the drum and uh, we've also got to mention that Lias pays for it and some mm. other stuff with one of Teeth. his diamond tooth. Oh, yeah. Teeth. Yeah. One of his diamond tooths. One, one of his tooths. <laughs> that's how that's how a, a troll would say it. But I felt like that was kind of, I don't know if this is a lot of bands, but when the Beatles first started, they got in massive amounts of debt because they kept buying instruments and had mm. to owe money. And that's how one of their managers sort of took them on by paying their music shop debt. Oh. So I felt like this was almost a Beatles-specific reference. And Dibbler does something similar for them mm. later on, yeah. Although why he never just pays their guild membership, I don't know. <laughs> like that would have solved a lot of their problems. Maybe he would just... It. It's unlike, it's unlike Dibbler. He won't let any money go if he doesn't have to. Mm. That's mm. very true. Um, now, we have skipped a bit that's important before we get to the gig at the drum because by this stage of the book, a certain small skeletal creature... Mm has turned up um, trying to recruit Susan to the cause because Death has, in his melancholy, just buggered off. I mean, again, it's 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 like Reaper Man. Death is missing, presumed gone, except he hasn't been sacked this time. He's actually shirking his duty. He's trying to forget. On purpose. Mm. Yeah, and he's searching for ways to forget, because he, which is hard for him because he remembers everything. He's kind of like brother in uh, Small Gods where it's sort of like, forget this ever happened. And brother's like, how? What is this sorcery that you mm. expect me to do? But death also remembers the future in a weird sort of way. So he's like, I don't want to feel like this. He's feeling feelings and he doesn't like it. Uh, he wants to forget. So he's trying to deal with it that way. Um, so he's wandered off. He seeks enlightenment from like a monk up on a mountain who mm. tells him like, maybe you could drink from this river or join the Clatchian Foreign Legion or get drunk. Like those are the classic ways to forget your troubles. Mm. And so he goes to the river, doesn't do anything for him. So he goes to... um 
and also no one knows where it is because everyone's forgotten. Um, and he uh, and he goes to the Clashian Foreign Legion. Uh, and meanwhile, yeah, Susan has been approached by this little rat, the and death Binky. of rats. I have a Binky. question though, like Clashian Foreign Legion, shouldn't it be the Quermian Foreign Legion? I was thinking the same thing, but I think they've established that Quirm is right next door. Yeah. And uh, I mean, but you know, the but thing Quirm that, is France, yeah. Yeah, but Quirm is basically France, yeah. And and also the French Foreign Legion, the whole foreign part means that they're not in France, they're mm. elsewhere, usually in Africa somewhere. Um, but Clatchian sounds better. But yeah, I guess Clatchian. I think legions. he just wants, wanted to write sand. Uh, he wanted to just ev- evoke lots of images of sand and the sand bury, is horrible. and bury death up into his neck in sand. Because uh, it's time and it's a metaphor and all of those things. Because he's yeah. te- he's. Metaphorically buried in sand, but now he's literally buried in sand, it, it which is. means you can't escape from your problems no matter how far you run. <laughs> That's true. I, I mean, it's also just a very funny visual when you imagine yeah. it, like, <laughs> help, the Grim help. Reaper buried in the sand, <laughs> going, "Oh, I guess this is awful." Uh, yeah, give me another day. Give me another I guess. day or so. Let's, let's see if this works. I can still remember things. Yeah, yeah. and how all they—they're all really forgetful. Like they—they mm. they haven't just forgotten their pasts or put them behind them. They actually just all have. Like really bad memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they call uh, them Bone Idol, which is great. Yeah, it's a good great pun. pun. There were some good puns in this book, Liz. Yes, I enjoyed them, and I had to stop writing them down because there were too many. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Susan gets recruited, uh, and she gets uh, you know the death of rats. But the the Grim Squeaker, which is such a good name, yeah, uh, has to approach her several times. Mm. She's because initially she's like, "This is nonsense. I can't be having with this." She's yeah. like Graham Chapman's like the character, like, too silly. If we have to stop this sketch. It's too silly. <laughs> and I kept like every time she'd say that, I'm like, a, like I had a visual of him coming in with his army uniform, and like, no, no, stop this. It's too silly. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, I did, now I'm going to think that every time <laughs> she says anything. But I thought that was interesting because. She ignores the evidence of what she can see in front of her face, which seems like something that she would not do. Um, but she also is very like anti, and I, I think this is Pratchett was very anti Alice in Wonderland. Like he really had a, a hate of that story, and this comes through here where she's like, "What am I supposed to follow you down a rabbit hole? This is ridiculous. Um, that's not what a sensible young lady would do." And you're like, yeah, "Well, you're probably right there, but uh, but don't you want to have an adventure? Because I want to read about it." Mm. Uh, so there's an inter- there's a fun sort of tension there, and then Binky shows up when we meet the horse grooming girls at the college, which, <laughs> which is also where we meet uh, her friends who are also a troll and a dwarf. I mm. feel like this is the classic trio. Anytime you want to show somebody in the disc world is all right, you give them like best mates who are a troll and a dwarf. <laughs> but also that mirrors that makes their uh, imp and Susan's plot lines mirror in a really interesting way. Yeah, mm. in like a fateful way almost. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about it like that, but that's that's cool. How mm. do you like her friends? Mm. They're, they're pretty great. I love the descriptions of the different ways that they approach the standard kind of jolly hockey sticks vibe of the college and how, how they each approach the sports. Yeah. I also just love the power dynamic of Susan coming up and owning the horse and all of the horse girls being like, fawning over it and then being kind of almost like narrow-eyed at Susan is like oh you've got to pay extra for this you know again just like so so perfectly accurate for that scenario and you can um, imagine it so well because horse girls are just such a thing you can picture straight away mm. but yeah but I do love Jade and, and Gloria a mm, lot mm, mm-hmm. 
Um, and we don't we don't get to see that much of them. They're sort of their one big scene is when Binky shows up, and then mm. they kind of mentioned a little bit at the end. And yet again, it's the dwarf bringing in the blowjob joke. <laughs> isn't it the troll? Isn't it the the heads rolling around? Isn't that the troll? Yeah, one? but then I think it's it's Gloria who points out that like she wouldn't say that. Cause yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. Because like I think the troll says the sports mistress would say get sacred, some head. Get some head. Who, yeah. yeah, but that's nice because then we get like we get the jokes from. Both sides. <laughs> now, now that sounds like it's a dirty joke. I didn't mean it. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. Um, what's happened to this podcast? It's gotten very filthy <laughs> since the last episode. To be fair, I think it's the book's fault, not our fault. That's mm-hmm. that's fair. That's yep. fair. Uh, and then, But then she does go with Binky eventually. Like, she puts him in the stable and then she comes out at night, gets on his back and he flies off. Although not before hovering in the air in front of the others, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. makes them all a bit suspicious. Uh, and she goes to Death's Domain and remembers what she couldn't remember because she's had her memories of her grandfather it, not erased but made very vague. Mm. I was in two minds about that. I wasn't entirely sure whether that was something that was done to her deliberately or if that is just the vagaries of like very young memory. Like when you're four, you have these. I mean, I, I could really identify with that. I remember like I have this very clear memory when I think about it, and I know this is partly because memories are constructed when you recall them, not when, you know, not they're not written into your brain like a computer, but uh, of my grandfather putting me in a tree and bouncing me on the branch. Mm. But that kind of happened when I was much more than, you know, one or two years old. So mm. I can't, I clearly can't have a very clear memory of that, but I, but I feel like I do. Uh, and then there's a lot of other things from when I was about that age that I don't have that clear memory of. Mm. I think it's partly that. But also the whole thing about death and the thing that he shares with Susan where you can be forgotten because of your very nature. So it might be that your mind actively works to forget death. And that's why Susan can't quite grasp it as well in the same way that people can't grasp that she's in a room if she chooses not to. And it's not a choice thing. I think it's just your mind works around it. Kind of like when they see Binky floating at the school, they immediately sort of write that off as not, that couldn't have happened. So like we're going to just not remember that as it was Mm. yeah yeah and i like it because that kind of ties into susan's no this is silly it's almost like she is like mirroring or or like trying to be like everyone else Mm. it's like no uh other people would just sort of naturally let go of this and sort of say oh i must be seeing things i'm going to actively do it and consciously like this happened and i'm going to ignore it um which is like a nice little uh yeah particular susan uh, trait. Mm. Yeah. I think the other thing that I liked about this, or, well, hang on, not, let me rephrase that. The other thing that I thought was interesting about this is you, you don't get a lot of her impression of what Death's Domain is like really f- as herself because almost as soon as she arrives, she starts to take on the role and therefore a lot of the sort of memories and understanding. Like she sees the place the way death sees it, which is introduced in this book. We never have never had this before where the dimensions in the place are kind of arbitrary, Mm. but to humans who visit, it all seems like a normal sized house with normal sized land. But death is like, this room is like 10 miles wide and you go from the door to the tiny bit of carpet in the middle. Mm. Uh, How do you do that? And it's like, well, because I perceive it as not existing. Mm. And she sees it that way too, which I thought was really weird. And I was like, why? Mm. (laughs) It was just interesting, another way to show how alien death is, which felt like a point in favor of separating Susan from that until she was older. Mm. Like growing up around that would be very hard to be a regular, like, well, not regular person, but, you know, like a to have a normal perception of the world even. 
I don't know. I don't know. Does but that make could, sense? As in, like, if she was taught about both sides of who she is earlier on, like, she could have learned to separate them as well rather than being confusing like, when she turned 16. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. As in, I think that's a valid point, but she's almost like a mixed cultural person. And I'm probably putting that lens on it as a mixed cultural person. But she has this side of her, the death side of her, and the normal human mortal side of her. And the death side has been suppressed by her parents, which I don't think is fair because I think she should have had the opportunity to see both, to grow up with both. And it seems that when she was there, she was happy and able to embrace it. And that didn't seem to mess up who she was. In fact, maybe she's a bit more standoffish now because she's been forced to be one thing. Yeah. And also she was quite, the the parents weren't concerned because she was happy mm. because she did accept it, mm. which I think is very important. They were forcing her away from the the what she was being drawn to. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe she could have coped with it and wasn't given the chance, but we, we can't know that. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. I think there's an extra dimension, and this is one of those things that fantasy and sci-fi stories do. They sort of throw this extra dimension into these things um, that maybe disrupts the the kind of their metaphorical power. But there's an element where Mort and Isabel are afraid mm. because they're like, we're just people. Like, mm. I worked for death. I was saved from being dead by him, but we're just human beings. But now we have a daughter. Is she going to be tainted by that? Is she going to be something different? So it's 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 less that this is something that we are comfortable with. It's like something they are consciously rejecting and going, we just want to go back to being regular mortals and now realizing because of the weird way that, you know, the magic and the influence of death works that their daughter is going to have some of that inherently in them. Mm. And they're like, but we don't want that for ourselves. We want to leave that behind. And, you know, maybe that leads to some sort of, I mean, and this is all conjecture, but this is possibly another source of, some estrangement between them is that she's a reminder of what they have tried mm. to mm. deny, which is possibly why they've changed their attitude so significantly about involving death in their lives. Mm. You know, the thing that broke my heart into like a bunch of pieces and I actually sort of was like, oh no, when I read it was when death had given child Susan a My Little Binky set because he oh. was trying to like embrace the mortal thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, that's just so... Deeply cute and upsetting mm. because grandfather's trying hard to do the right thing. It's just, you know. Yeah. And also, he like, that's probably the closest that he got to actually understanding the thing that he was giving, like making the bed, only the sheets of rock hide, mm. you know, a hun- bunch of doors that don't open. Like, so he's clearly, like, worked incredibly hard to understand this thing and then like created it to give it to her you can imagine him standing like in a toy store observing for like i don't know hours upon hours being like what do the children like (laughs) and it's like oh well the ones around the age of my granddaughter like this so i will go home and make that but what horses do i know (laughs) think he's the best horse so i'm not going to give you my little crappy horse from down the road Mm. i absolutely want a my little binky listeners if you know of any fan creations that are my little binkies please send them through i want to see one i saw an amazing tattoo of my little binky at nullis anxietis it was really fantastic and she designed it herself oh she had a whole like leg of self-designed pratchett tattoos it was fantastic that's super cool i wish i'd seen that if you're listening uh please send us if you're comfortable send us a photo Mm. i would love to or maybe the original artwork i would love to see that Mm. that sounds amazing but yeah look and she also meets albert at this stage Mm. who is a bit like uh, here we go. He's mm. off again. What are you doing? Um, but he seems quite accepting of someone's got to do it. It's going to be you. It makes sense. Uh, and she goes off on the rounds, which is where she 
meets the old man who's got lots of money and his relatives don't really like him and um and she doesn't meet a witch or a wizard I don't think no. from memory which is traditional for people taking on the the death roll in these books but well she does not immediately but she does hang out with Ridicule and go and have breakfast. Oh, mm. true, yeah. But she doesn't. T- it's like meet one at, at, mm. at her death. Yeah, uh, there's water for the hoss kind of thing. Yeah, like where they know that they're going to die. And mm. yeah, yeah, classic business. But this guy, he's such a jerk, and it's good that she got like a massive jerk for her first one because like his kids don't like him. And he's left all the money to the cat. And you're like, oh, no, maybe he's a nice guy. No, he's left money to the cat because he thought the cat was lazy. And he wants it to be stressed out while his family tries to kill it. Like, you could not be more of a jerk. Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's an easy in to uh, you've got to take somebody's life or at least help transition them as they die. Mm. And it's this guy. <laughs> you're like, good. I'm glad. And the grim squeaker gives his cat a kick as well. Oh, <laughs> Loves so, it. So rough. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she's she's on there, and then her third appointment is Imp mm. as they're mm. playing on the stage of the drum, and it's it's not going well. Uh, well, it's it's going okay. People they're are throwing axes and stuff, <laughs> but the audience is really trolling them. Mm. Yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's he's meant to die. Someone's about to throw an axe at him, um, and at the moment. But it, and she she does try to intervene. She's like, I've had enough of this. Like, I'm gonna not do it. Uh, but then even before she can't, like, the axe misses him anyway, mm. and that's not what kills him. Like, his life ends, and the music fills it up, and his lifetimer has this crackling energy inside it, and that's when the music with Roxin is born. They start playing. No, no, no one's quite sure what's going on. Uh, Glod and, and Lias are both taken over by the music and they just sort of play along without really knowing what's going on. Yeah, this is where it kicks off. And it's it's where we start to get this idea that this is another thing invading the Discworld from outside, which has happened, you know, several times before, most notably in Moving Pictures mm. and, and Reaper Man. And, um, yeah, it's it's freaking people out. But they love it. They do love it. I forget, is the librarian here for the... Librarians are here for this librarians one. Librarians are the, the first, first one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he always is. Like, he's an early adopter of everything. Yeah. 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 As are the other excited. wizards, you know. Like, mm. Rick Kelly describes them as a weather vane. Like, when anything mm. weird happens, that it happens extra hard to the wizards. Mm. But he's got a, a big recreational life. Like, he spends a lot of time outside the university just enjoying things, which mm. is kind of nice. Yeah, although I not, <laughs> there's always those implications that he freaks people out. Like when he goes to certain, like he freaks out strippers by sitting in the front row. There's With a, a joke about that. Yeah. And you're like, that's not cool, dude. Mm. Like, don't do that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, apart from that, yeah, he seems quite jolly and having a good time. He, it's weird that he is, he's often depicted as being so in tune with his orangutan nature and then in stuff like this, he's still very, very human, mm. um, which I kind of like in some ways. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, it's it's an explosion of music with rocks in. It's here to stay. It's happening, and they decide that they're going to change their names. Um, Imp reveals that Imp Iselin means um, Bud of the Holly, so mm. he changes his name to Buddy, which is such a good. Oh, it's, just, it's so good. It's like because they didn't see it coming. A yeah. lot of them you can see coming. <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, oh, of course, of course, that's the story that I'm reading. Oh, so good. Yeah. And then um, Lias changes his name to Cliff. Which is a, such a good troll name. But like Cliff, no one makes music called Cliff. Oh, so rough. Oh. 
I, it, it's just, I mean, because I, I did not grow up with the music of Cliff Richard, but I did grow up with the young ones, which introduced me to the music of Cliff Richard. So I feel like, yeah, I, I'm on board with this reference. It's pretty great. Well, I had the shadows and I'm like, like after Cliff Richard, I'm like, oh yeah, this is like a thing. And then and apparently they were all together in a group and I didn't know that. It's kind of like how I got, was it? Blackout or backwards. It's just always the other way around. Oh, that's all right. Like, I read this before I read Mort, actually. Well, it's like, you know, so many of our generation watched the Simpsons episode of um, Streetcar Named Desire before they knew about the Streetcar Named Desire. Yes, that's where you learn about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not a text that gets studied in high school very much anymore. Not in this country anyway. But yeah, after, after the gig, uh, they decide they need a, a keyboard uh, to mm. accompany the band. And um, fortunately, um, the librarian's gone home to play with his organ. Mm. Which is <laughs> another yet another dirty jokes. joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it does also give us the great Blues Brothers reference where they go to the opera house to steal the piano and they say they're on a mission from Glod. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so, I sh- it shouldn't tickle me as much as it does. <laughs> but it's but delightful. It, it really does. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I think there's a couple of other Blues Brothers references in here. Like, is someone wearing sunglasses at nighttime at one point? I mean, which is also I think Chiropraise does, I think. Yeah, Chiropraise the Troll does. Yeah, but uh, I, uh, I don't know. I just love it a lot. And then, yeah, the wizards start to react. Mm. It's basically just the music with Roxin taking over the place more. Except for Rid Cully because he's sensible. That's true. He's immune. He is immune. I just think someone's trying to kill him. <laughs> he's great in this book too. He is great in this book. I feel like in, more so than in a lot of the other books that feature the wizards, he's kind of like, well, I'm going to be the sensible one and get stuff done while the other wizards just kind of go crazy. And also when he pairs up with Ponder Stibbons and Ponder's like, what is happening? Mm. <laughs> I have no idea. It was great. I think my favourite part of the wizards going crazy for music with rocks in it is when the dean tra- like starts fashioning a new pair of trousers. And because like, this is ridiculous. It's like, well, you're not going to name them after you. And I was like, oh, my God, they're deans. They're deans. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good. Um, also, the whole James Dean. Yes. Uh, Overtune over is, uh, yeah, it's just incredible. And there's several, like, almost references to, well, there are references, but there's several almost moments where someone nearly says the classic line from Rebel Without a Course, which is, oh, yeah, it's great. Mm. Uh, but yeah, look, I think this middle part of the book is really just that escalation of mm. all of this happening. Susan trying to figure out what it is, coming to several of their gigs, um, and Rid Kelly going to a few, the Wizards going to another one. They go to the big gig which is after the drum where they, they play in the cavern. <laughs> after Dibbler's taken them on as, their, as the manager. And then as people hear the music, they start wanting to play it themselves and they're not real good. Um, I do also like during this part of the book, and I think we, we're probably going to shorthand the middle part of the book because yeah. there's so much Just there. like There's like the swing tree, we're going to cut out the middle of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I loved that. Excellent. I loved it. I, I actually remembered it differently. Like I remembered that. It did like it was just the middle was cut out so that the swing could go through. But I forgot that he actually put supports on either side. Like he hasn't just defied the laws of gravity. Uh, I mean, he has, but he's he's it's put logical. this sort of sop into them to say, oh no, I'm going to do it logically. Yeah, and the way that they keep mentioning it without actually telling you what it is until right near the end, I thought that was kind of cute. It's another heartbreaking thing, like the My Little Binky, like he makes a grandfathers make swings for their granddaughters. So, yeah. yeah. That was really sweet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, um, I mean, the, the, I do like when uh, Glaude and Cliff decide they're going to go back to the shop to see 
mm. if they can figure out what was going on there. Because it has a number, and this is a detail I'd forgotten about since the last time I read it, that when they buy it, it's got like the number one chalked on it. And when they go back to the shop, they realize that all the things in the shop have numbers on them because it's it's a pawn shop mm. for musicians. And, uh, you know, which, and they, they talk about that classic, that's a classic musician thing. Like you run out of money, so you have to hock your, your instrument and, um, to pay the rent and then find another job to get it back. Um, so you can play music to make some more money. And you're like, yeah, it's like a real, it's, it's, it's nerebrous. Yeah. It's a, it's a horrendous reality of being Bleak. an independent yeah. artist. Um, but, uh, yeah, and that's they're sort of like, what is this place? And they also, they, I love how they go back to it and God's like, see, I told you it would be gone. And then Cliff's like, no, it's on the other side of the street. And they go, oh, I'm sure that's not where it was. And he's like, you just don't remember. Uh, and then he's validated because it does like change sides of the street. It's so good. She absolutely put it on the wrong side of the street. And I love her, like she's got the little lever under the desk that makes it move or disappear. And I'm like, You're a, that's a classic magic shop business. Mm. And she knows it's very, there's a lot of, genre awareness going on in those scenes which Mm. i always am a bit tickled by and they they play more gigs they're on the run from the musicians guild because mr cleats like got his enforcers after them but they keep getting defeated by susan she's like i'm not no you're not killing him like i'm trying to figure this out so there's this yeah this escalation of stuff happening and buddy has insisted on having a free concert because the music should be free Mm. and so dibbler initially hesitant about it has leaned into it and essentially sent them off to be out of the way while he like organizes how to make money out of it. <laughs> and also takes on a whole bunch of new bands. Yeah. And they go on a tour. And actually the one bit of Discworld merchandise that I most covet is the band with Rocks in T-shirt. Mm-hmm. And I, there's quite a nice one that you can get from the Discworld Aporium. Although I'd, I'd also quite like to see like a fan-made one that looks a bit more like you imagine that they would have looked in the Discworld because they would not have been screen printed. It's never actually made clear how they're making T-shirts uh, or indeed that T-shirts are a thing. <laughs> except that they get Chalky the Troll to print them up for like a dollar a piece or whatever it is. I feel um, like he'd have like a rock on the other side that's carved with a thing and just like bash the thing onto it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just like do an indentation and maybe like drag that through some Like a big die. Like a big dust. stamp maybe. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Like a pota- I sort of imagine yeah, like a potato like- stamp but with like rocks. Speaking of stamps, they mentioned stamps in this, like, as in, like, he uses stamp, like, Terry Pratchett uses stamp as an analogy in this book. And I'm like, but you haven't had the post office yet. I think it's a real, is it a real world one? Because he yeah, does. it's a real world analogy, so it's coming from our world. But I'm just kind of like, Ugh. He does do that, yeah. Yeah, it's often used, like, cars or real world. Well, less so as the series goes on because he can refer more to in-world stuff because he's invented mm. more in-world stuff. But he's still, at this point, still occasionally referencing stuff from our world to explain it to us, the reader. Mm. Yeah, which is usually quite seamless, but every now and then you see one and you're like, what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do they have cars in the Discworld? What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to say the segments where they're on tour as well were very well done. Mm. Had he toured by this point in time? Did he uh, Did he know what it was like? Because Yeah, he'd done his first few signing tours, I think, by yeah, the stage. Right. That makes sense. Like his experiences feel across into his writing. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just so accurate. People see touring is like this glamorous thing and it's just the most dull thing going along it's like oh they've got some beans now and it's just so it's just so perfect um how it's described because i think that a lot of this is talking about like i think the illusion of fame and the illusion of power and and music and stuff and as much as people talk about that and they know they're they're aware of it logically and consciously they don't have this like emotional understanding that 
um, like the impetus is always to put people on pedestals so they don't have this emotional understanding that they're just people and this is this is not a glamorous lifestyle. And it can be quite overwhelming too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's underscored by the fact that the poster doesn't look like them to the point that people don't recognize that it's them. Mm. So the only thing that's recognizable about them is their music. The people are almost irrelevant mm. to the image. Mm. Yeah. yeah, 100%. But I also liked how uh, when they're on the tour, the only time that they really feel like they're getting anything out of it is when they're playing. And even then, that's mostly Buddy because Glaude and Cliff keep talking about how they barely even remember what happens when they're playing because the music kind of takes over and plays for them. Mm. And they're both, you know, they're both musicians who can play still. I mean, Buddy can't really play on his own anymore, as we discover later in the book. Like he, unless he's playing the music with Roxin on the guitar. He he just he can't do it anymore. His soul is gone. He's it's replaced by the music with Roxin. He used to be out of the music man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like I feel like he can. It's just like the like the, we're talking about when he gets up on stage, right? And when he yeah. asks permission basically just to do one of his own. I I feel like he can, but it's not what the audience wants. Oh yeah. Uh, and I, I really felt that and I understood that because I, I know that, that when you sort of, um, or I see that tension in people who perform, like, I mean, Radiohead's playing Creep, for instance, and then writing My Iron Lung about it. Uh, people want a certain thing. And when you don't give them that exact thing, then they're really disappointed by it. So I felt for me, that was my interpretation of like, oh, I just want to do this thing that was before this. And then people not responding to that. Yeah. And I find that I always found that that's a real tension as an artist of any, type like mm. whether it's comedy or, or drama or anything is that you sometimes are making things for yourself but you are not your primary audience and you have to make things for your audience or what's the point and then you also make things for yourself and in an ideal world those things would be the same but of course they're not always the same so yeah i i thought that was a nice touch in the book too that that mm. really comes out yeah, I feel like Terry doesn't make things for his audience, though. I feel like all of his work was for him, and it just so happened that his audience had the same tastes, and that's kind of an interesting contrast to this character. Yeah. Hmm. But, yeah, the the tour goes on. It gets more raucous. Uh, cities start to not want them to come because the audiences go crazy. Uh, but also one thing that happens is back in Ankh-Morpork, Ridcully has gone to see Ponder Stibbons in the High Energy Magic building, uh, where he not only gets them to try and figure out more about what is this music with rocks in business and becomes more and more sure that it's Eldritch Horrors invading from another dimension. Uh, and Ponder, um, not only we meet briefly meet Hex for the first time, although Hex doesn't really do anything, <laughs> which I mm. thought was a shame. Like he gets it to add up some numbers. It's not yet self-aware, mm. so there's no Skynet on the Discworld at this stage. Uh, but That it tells you. Well, true. It's keeping it secret to itself. Uh, but also they realize when they go to a concert together that you can trap the music in a little box with a string because the music wants to spread. It wants to get into as many ears as possible and to, into as many souls as possible. And uh, Dibbler finds out about that because Ponda doesn't know when to shut up Yeah, uh, as they're walking home from the gig. And he goes, oh, maybe I can make this work. But it only works on the original music with Roxanne. It doesn't work on... The- it's just weaker. Yeah. Yeah which I thought was an interesting touch because mm. uh, there's no, because it's not really magic, but it's also not really science. They have to have a string in the box to capture the music on, mm. which, um, yeah, I thought was quite interesting. And you never get to see him use that scheme because, like, it's not until the big 
uh, free concert that he's got all the little boxes set up on the stage. And I'm like, are we going to see like a music distribution parody as well, where he's like trying to sell these music boxes to people uh, and how much are they going to pay for them? And are people worried about the fidelity? <laughs> how you set them up in their homes? Well, yeah. like that, I think that's what it was nodding to, right? And that's where it was headed, but yeah. it just got snuffed before then. Yeah. Um, Probably for the best. Yeah. Definitely for I mean, the best. Too much book, otherwise. Mm. Yeah, too much book and also too much power to Dibbler. Yeah, true. Oh, yeah. He needs to be thwarted. He needs to go back to his sausages. It's like sitcom. Yeah. You know? Did he get properly thwarted in this book? Well, he, he loses all the money that he, he made. Oh, that's true, money. yeah. There's, and it's like, an, yeah, well, we're not going to talk about other books because we want to keep them separate. But yeah, he gets... He gets consistently thwarted, which is kind of good. Yeah, he always ends up selling sausages again. <laughs> but he always has that spark to keep trying. Yeah, well, like, it's the, na- the, the next scheme, really. Yeah. He's always on to the next He's scheme. He's a schemer. He's even more, like, Arthur Daly-ish in this book, I feel, than in some of the other ones, because he's got that whole thing where they go to Sato Square to meet him, and he's like, this is my office. <laughs> and this is like, because I've found that, like, not having a specific office means it's a little bit harder for people to find me. But on the other side... Not having a specific office makes it a little bit harder for people to find me. Mm, mm. <laughs> I'm like, that's so oh, dodgy salesman stuff, isn't it? Mm. Oh, it was great. I think we can probably go towards the ending. Is there anything important we need to talk about in the middle? I just want to re-say how much I love the Grim Squeaker. Yeah. All this. Like, as in, that's not a plot point. I just want to say that he's very good and an important part of this. And I also feel like the Raven being called Quoth. Um, very good. I know that that gets maligned by, by Terry Pratchett in the book. It's like, oh, the wizard had that kind of sense of humor. I'm like, but it's funny because he's quaffed the raven and he refuses to say the N-word. Well, I also want to know who is the Discworld equivalent of Edgar Allan Poe? <laughs> who is that guy? Because Edgar Allan Poe does not exist on the Discworld. But clearly the raven as a poem does. Mm. So maybe it just is Edgar Allan Poe and he exists in every universe. Oh, Maybe. I'm sure that there'll be a footnote somewhere. It feels like an oversight from um, Pratchett not to include him. But maybe that was it. Maybe it was just like it's supposed to be just there for uh, for us readers who know Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But it is it is cool. Yeah. <laughs> it is great. Yeah, it's yeah. a good name like, for a raven. That's so kind of good. Um, and, and he speaks. That's what – it's also good. Yeah, which is the whole point. Like mm. that's why um, the death of rats fetches him. And he's just like, yeah, I just work for this wizard. I'm part of the standard kit. You've got to have a dribbly candle and a skull and a stuffed alligator and a raven that talks. And mm. that's my job. And he talks to the skull, which is cool too. Like yeah. It's, yeah. Oh, I do like the scene where they, they go to the battlefield mm. and it's mm. like Vikings. So all of the Valkyries are coming mm. down and the raven's just gone off for a snack. He's like, oh, this is great. Look at this, a buffet. But then later he's like, oh, it's such a waste, senseless waste. And mm. he's like, I can't eat all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe I can get a doggy. This <laughs> is like a horrifying concept. Uh, I loved it though. That yeah, was great. It was great. Yeah. Um, I thought the Valkyries were pretty cool. The as Valkyries well. were great. And They're... the fact that they were like, oh, what's your singing range? <laughs> yeah, we could use some more sopranos. Too many mezzo sopranos around here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think any opera singers listening could uh, identify with that. Mm. Um, but also, I mean, the other thing I guess that's important plot-wise is Susan is just determined to get to the bottom of this mm. uh, and starts meddling by uh, interfering with all of the assassins who are sent after Buddy and the Musicians Guild enforcers. Um, and the Musicians Guild members are, like, horrified that Mr. Cleet is employing assassins. It's like, no, we're supposed to do this ourselves. We break our own fingers. We, like, mm. smash our own windpipes. We don't We don't employ assassins to actually kill people. We give back instruments very slowly. You know, that kind of yeah. thing. 
Yeah. I really loved how they said, like, oh, of course the assassins would be useless if, when they're not, like, 100 metres from a fine tailor's or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's like, mm, yeah, because, I mean, the assassins, it's so easy to make someone like that feel all-powerful and just, like, a default. Mm. And so to have that sort of um, flaw to their to their guild and to their people is just really nice. And they're mm. like, I can't believe I'm out in this countryside. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you could just imagine them. It's yeah, I love that too. Mm. Mm. Uh, but yeah, as she starts to interfere more, uh, the death of rats is like, oh no, what are we gonna do? And um, well, he, he's more like squeak. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm I, I'm uh, reading into that, <laughs> but uh, seeks out Albert to say, we got to do. What are we gonna do? And Albert's like, oh yeah, of course, it's up to me. It's up to old Muggins here. <laughs> And he's very irritated and he takes his lifetimer with him. Mm. And he's got like, he's still got quite a long time left. Like 19 I, days. 19 days. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, I imagined it being a lot. 19 hours. Less than that. But it's actually loads. But then he loses most of it because as he goes down to the disc to look for death uh, and follows the trail, he goes to the Clutchian Foreign Legion. He goes to the mended drum where death was trying to get drunk and eventually did remember how to get drunk and got thrown onto the ankle, which was a nice touch. Uh, but doesn't really find him but just as he's sort of getting somewhere he gets knocked out by a burglar yeah. and smashes his lifetimer and the death of rats is like oh no uh, runs off looking for death on their own and i love that there's that visual of like all of the flocks of rats running away from him <laughs> wherever he goes which is great um and meanwhile death has ended up after coming out of the ank with a, a, the homeless population of Ankh-Morpork, Pork, the, mm. the members of the Beggars Guild. Which is one of your favourite jokes, isn't it, Fury? Mm, yeah, mm. so that that great great moment where he's sort of like begging on the street and the band whose name keeps changing but is at one point The Whom, which is my favourite of their um, <laughs> of their band names. And when it, they're sort of walking along and they pass uh, they pass a Mr. Scrub as he's known at that point in time and one of them just has this feeling like, oh, I should really go back and give some money and so he walks all the way back and gives gives um mr scrub some money and the line is like uh he gives the money to the very grateful death um <laughs> which is like obviously i didn't know who the grateful dead was when i first read it because i would have been quite young but it reading it again is like oh that's just so good so subtle commitment to a bit <laughs> yeah like massive com- there's so much there's so much commitment to all of i mean all of the different bits um that that sort of it's just like this ongoing one one joke uh but that's so satisfying every time you come across it because i didn't see that coming all of these times i didn't see it coming it's just so wonderful yeah you, and you can imagine there's an editor sort of sitting there and be like oh maybe this could go in but nope stays yeah <laughs> it's not necessary but it's so good it's not necessary but i mean that's like i guess that ties into exactly what pratchett was doing is like he's writing this for himself mm. he thinks he is hilarious and he is and he just like does it yeah. The heavy metal joker. It's just so good. Like, and like um I call it rat music. Yeah. Um with the with the dwarves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was great. Yeah. It's like I can see what I can see what you're doing here. And actually my, my favorite band name one is um where we're, we're certainly dwarves, which is like the opposite of they might be giants. I don't think I'd listened to they might be giants when I first I read this. I didn't get that. Yeah, get that at but all. they're now one of my favorite bands. And I, Terry Pratchett also is a big they might be giants fan by all accounts. Yeah, so that was really nice. I, that was, took me by surprise because I didn't remember it because I didn't know who they were the first mm. time. And I was like, this is so great. But yeah, it all comes together as they, we get towards the concert in the park, and. The other bands are all playing. The band with Roxin 
is running late back from their tour because they've run into some misadventure. It's all coming together. Uh, they're going to play this big free concert. The music with Roxin is going to get into as many people as possible. But also, uh, before they left on the tour, and this is one of my favorite bits of the book, Glod and uh, Cliff are like, we're going to go to the Cunning Artifices and we're going to fix something. And then it'll tell you what it is, but I remember what it was from the last time I read it. And I think it's probably fairly obvious if you haven't read the book before. Uh, when they come back to Ankh-Morpork, before they go to the concert, they take a detour to pick this thing up and they've had someone repair Buddy's harp mm. and they give it to him just as they are about to go on stage, which I thought was just such a beautiful, touching moment. And I just love, I mean, look, I'm a big, I'm just a sucker for good friendships in books, particularly, I, I mean, particularly be- between men because you don't see it very often portrayed in a way that seems healthy and, and mm. warm and loving um but also just in general and i just love the band with roxin and the camaraderie they have and how worried claude and cliff are about buddy like they just know something's not right and they're trying to work it out but it's just beyond them and they feel like they can't do anything about it and this is the one thing they can do is maybe try and give him his heart back and it leads to that beautiful moment that we alluded to earlier where buddy like strums it and he can't really play it but he asks the music and rocks and if he can play the song that he wrote for the Estedford mm. um back home i think i don't know if he actually uses the term Estedford, but it, it's clearly that sort of thing mm. um and he plays it one last time in the old style yeah and so i think because people are affected by that song still yeah and from my memory of it people do still feel like oh thinking back home yeah like um cliff thinks about uh, back home and and so there's like this nostalgia attached to it so he definitely still can play oh yeah yeah it's definitely still back in his body but he had to he had to ask permission to be mm. able to do it yeah so it's like when you are in anamorphs and you're possessed by a yurk mm-hmm. and the yurk is controlling you but if yurks were kind of nice and you could be like hey can i just have a moment to regain control of my body and do a thing just for this and it lets you that's kind of how, what I feel like it's going on here. Hold like, on, hold he, on, hold on. What, what's a yerk? Like, I <gasps> oh, you didn't do the animorphs thing. No, I, you have to remember, I'm a, I'm a fair bit older than both of you, so they kind of passed me by. I was aware of them, but I never read them. It's a parasitic alien that basically slides in your ear and controls your body. Um, so Gross. most of the population so is not aware. Gross that this invasion is happening because when they possess you, they know stuff about you and they act as though they are you, but you're sort of inside your own head screaming while this thing controls your body. It's quite horrifying, really. So basically it's like a parasite is like, in this case, I think the music is occupying him and using him basically like a zombie. Yeah. And so when he asked it for permission to do this song, the real him is in there who could play all along, whereas the music can only do the music with Roxin. That's why... He's such a goober at other music. Yeah. But when Buddy, well, Imp is actually allowed back out of the Buddy persona, that's when he can play. That's my th- take on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why the permission thing. That, mm. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it is, yeah, They both um, Cliff and um, Glod refer to it as music with whole, mm. you know, like instead of soul. But it's, I, I liked that. Anytime they show the commonalities between dwarves and trolls, I really enjoy that and that they both have the same term for this similar feeling, even though the specifics of that feeling are quite different for each of them. I just, yeah, I love that. And the way that it affects the crowd, yeah, it's beautiful. So does that mm. mean this should be called whole music? Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> if that is the synonym they're using throughout. Uh, yeah, well, 
Because mm. I was like, oh, it's like a like a hook or like a heart to it. But yeah, I don't think it would have sold as many copies. If Hold it as many copies. No, <laughs> <laughs> Hold as many copies. Yeah, yeah. And then as soon as they finish playing, because then they go and play actual music with Roxin, including a music with Roxin cover of Sione Bodda, which is the um, folk song that Buddy has written. Uh, which I, I I love that it has that sort of Welshy sounding name. I don't know that that's real Welsh. I'll, I'll have to look that up. But yeah, it just uh, that really tickled me. And it's just like all those early, you know, it's like uh, Woodstock or one of the mm. big early music concerts where they they would play folk music sometimes. And then you had a lot of crossover between folk musicians and rock musicians. And I, which I love, mm. uh, folk rock is one of my all time favorite nerd genres of music, particularly Canadian folk rock. For some reason, I'm really got into. Um, but yeah, I thought that was great. Mm. It's really lovely. But then as soon as they finish playing, they run for it um, with all the stuff. Uh, and and as they don't realize at the time, all of Dibbler's money <laughs> from the concert tour and the concert itself. So they've got a whole lot of cash. A whole lot of cash. Sorry. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was thinking more like they got a whole lot of cash. No, uh, but they, uh, and they ride off uh, towards their destiny, their destiny to die in a terrible crash, much like, you know, it's going to be the day the music died. You mm. know? People have to race to get there. Susan's on her way on Binky. Death can't ride Binky because Binky is otherwise occupied, but he knows that somewhere in this town there is a horse that he can ride. And this whole time the librarian's been stealing bits and pieces, and I'd completely forgotten. I thought the librarian was building, like, a new Piano. organ. Mm. And then, no, he's built a motorcycle <laughs> out of bones. And it's such a small part of the book but it ends up on the cover mm. because that is awesome. Because like, what a hacking image. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. Mary Poe riding a motorcycle made out of bones. Incredible. Mm. And then he rides off on and it all falls apart, but it says, as it says in the book, it doesn't matter. It's still essentially there. The, mm. the memory of the thing or the soul of the thing is still there. Some good omens vibes there. Yeah. And they all make it to this corner. And it's the same corner on the same road where Morton Isabel died. And uh, which I thought was was interesting, but like well, it's it's like oh, well again rail up there. Well, I mean, it's the two Susan and Imp's plotlines. Uh, like even Imp gets taken over by the music, and Susan gets taken over by death, and so their their plot lines are very intertwined and sort of mirror each other very particularly. And maybe that's another reason why she feels that kind of crush on him is it's like you're like one of the only people who could understand what I'm going through because you're going through something kind of similar. Mm. So that kind of, I like that too. That's, mm. that's a good thing. But yeah, they, they will make it there just as the cart goes off the edge, but they manage not to die, but they see the other sort of future where that's what's supposed to happen. They die and music with rock becomes a legend that lives forever. And I think at this point of the book, I was a little hazy on what exactly the music with Roxian wanted because we get this great, like resolution where death turns up in the nick of time to help out because Susan's not quite sure what to do. Um, she's saved them from dying, going over the cliff, but they're standing there and the music is summoned and like is, is speaking to them. And that's like, a, a, you know, it's a great song. He gets the scythe and he smashes it on the ground and picks up a little sliver of it. And he takes the guitar and he plays a riff on it and slices all the strings and it doesn't, it sort of sets the music free in a sense, but also is, is killing it. Um, and suddenly it all goes silent in their heads because this is where the music reveals like I'm the, I'm the beat. And this is referred to a few times earlier in the book where they're talking about the idea that the music begins 
or the, the, the whole universe began with a sound. And we've already heard this idea in previous Discworld books with the listening monks and stuff, but that the music with Roxin is that sound, the sound of the start of everything and the beat behind, I think it says like, you know, I am the beat in every heartbeat or something like that. Uh, and now it wants to be recognized. But I was, I'm actually a little bit hazy on what exactly it wanted. What what was well, its goal? At one point, they say it wanted what everyone, everything wants, which is to procreate, and that's where rat music came from. <laughs> oh yeah, it was around that time, and so part of it is is you know the spawning of a variety of different musics. That's mm. one thing that it wanted. I'm not sure if that was its like main goal. Um, yeah, because I I guess because I, it feels like it is everywhere and it is already everything, and now it wants this sort of recognition almost that. It wants to be come out of the shadows, I guess, and be recognized for what it is. But it's a bit too powerful in the way that it takes over everything. But it, it, but is it though? I don't know. How well, do I we- mean, you throwing back to that thing previously with the finding the guitar in the shop and having one on it. Mm. So presumably, like the one harks back to the start of the universe. Yeah, and that th- this god that they're speaking of had to hock ho- there. <laughs> hock their thing because they ran out of money or something like that. No like, one was paying them to start any other universes. Yeah, and so they so they left it at this pawn shop. Um, and so it might even be just the idea that the gods moved on and uh, it's just been found again and it wanted to be found again, it wanted to be played, wanted to be heard. Sick of hanging around in an old music shop, <laughs> yeah. not being played. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. What did you think about this, Liz? It was kind of like, you know, viruses and bacteria, they, like, there's that theory, like, not a theory, but a way of framing it that you go, oh, I've got a cold, um, which I'm thinking about, obviously, because <laughs> I've got a cold, but um, I've got a cold, it's inconvenient, it'll move on, that's a virus using your body to procreate, but there's the thing that's like, do we exist so that bacteria and viruses have a host? And to me, maybe the music is kind of like a virus or a bacteria that was there since the beginning of time that needs people to survive, but it also doesn't want to keep being the background, the subordinate species. It might want to try and take over. It might try and be what its potential was all along, and now is its opportunity to take over, perhaps. Like those those brain funguses that take over ants. Like yeah, mm. or, or yurks. Yeah. <laughs> no. uh, it's an opportunity. Like it's been lying dormant, but suddenly, like an immunocompromised individual has come through, and it's like, oh, now's my opportunity to be like that movie where the monkeys did it. Contagion, isn't it? Like oh, the yeah. '90s movie. So yeah, yeah it's yeah. taking its opportunity to thrive and survive. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. At sure. the expense of humans, because like if it took over everyone, like by earworms and spreading soon maybe like the next step is that humans are just a vessel to which it is carried through i think as well it's interesting because in a later pratchett book this would have had a neater answer to that question mm. Mm. he would have put more thought into it as opposed to being like mm, i just want to write about music and make some fun jokes and like talk about where music came from and satirize all of this different stuff he will have actually th- put some more a little bit more clarity into um, cause maybe there is a thought there, but it's just not, he's not expressed it well, mm. but I suspect that it's, it's not, it's just like an ending that he found. It's an ending that he wrote. It doesn't feel particularly satisfying. Like, um, like some of them do. So, uh, yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of us putting ourselves into, 
into that answer as opposed to it necessarily being there. Yeah. It is uh, vague. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I found it very satisfying on a number of levels. Like mm. the visual of death shattering the scythe and using a bit of it as a guitar pick is... So, like that is metal as yeah metal af yeah um yeah i think for me it was mostly the i was just the motivation of the music itself was just a little too hazy for me i was yeah. just like, i'm not sure what i mean i, I kind of know what you want but and this whole time we've thought it was because you came from somewhere else and this is your way into the world but you're saying instead that and it, and it is meant to be a revelation it's like it's not what you thought this music is from here and it's been here since the start and you're like so what is it why is it here now like what is and is it just, and, and they do say like, you know, Buddy's not really a chosen one. He's just the right person in the right place at the right time mm. um, or potentially the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and then it, you know, death does his thing and then it's kind of all resolved. Yeah. Because uh, he's like basically holding the music with Roxanne to ransom. It's like, I could just let you die mm. or I guess I could put you back where you belong. If you leave all these people alone and unwrite the destiny that you've written for them, uh, and then it changes history where like it never happens and people don't remember it, which happens a lot in the disc world. Which I, it kind of makes sense, I guess. Otherwise, how would you get along in Angmore Pork if every other week there was a, uh, a an a impending apocalypse, right? Which does it also happens in, uh, um. That's a Doctor Who thing as well. They talk about how come nobody remembers like the 16 Dalek invasions. <laughs> like why isn't everybody traumatized by this? Uh, because their brains couldn't cope. If they did, it's like your brain yeah. can't cope with seeing a flying binky. Well, yeah, the thing is, is like, especially somewhere like London or New York, stuff like that does happen every day. <laughs> yeah. And what, it just Dalek becomes, invasions? well, equivalent. Yeah, like I remember going on the tube in London and this guy just having a giant panther sculpture that he just wheeled on and sat down next to. And it was just quite surreal. And like that sort of, and you see it, that's a bad example because it happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, weirder stuff happens all the dang time. And people just get really accustomed to it. It just becomes very normalized. And I think that there's an aspect of that with Ankhmore Pork. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think maybe later on <clears throat> he realizes that their brains don't have to be wiped every time that when you live in a big city, you just become accustomed to the tru- truly weird weird things that humans do yeah Mm. and in this book it's like the um there's several references to the previous things that have happened like the patrician has a great bit where he's like you know in other city states i'm sure they just have to worry about normal things like taxes they don't have to worry about eldritch abominations (laughs) invading from other dimensions Mm. and so he's got that sort of recollection and i feel like almost the main reason to wipe the slate clean is that he just wanted to write one book with like lots of music with rocks in jokes and he doesn't want there to have to be this constant background of rock music yep. in all the books that he writes afterwards. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's mostly I, I felt mostly satisfied by the ending. I think just because it was so dang cool. It was cool. And it was like fine. You know? Yeah. Cool. That's how this is ending. Sure. I didn't need anything more from it. Yeah. If there had been more then that would have been great. But it was it's perfectly fine as it is. It's mm-hmm. pronounced Mort. <laughs> I, I didn't need <laughs> I didn't need Mort from it. No. Uh, but then we get the last bits of the book. Everything, everyone kind of goes back to their normal lives. Albert gets taken back to Death's Domain and he's only got like 18 seconds of life left that they managed to scrape back up from his lifetimer and stick into a beer bottle. And Susan goes back to the school but sort of reconciles with her grandfather who's gone back to his job. And he kind of makes peace with his feelings about Morton Isabel's death. Which And we, we kind of skipped this earlier but there's the bit where Susan goes back in time because it's death, you know, she exists outside of time. 
to that point where Death is having the fight with Mort at the end of Mort mm. and then talks to Death afterwards, which is weird but great. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting ending for the book. And then there's the, the bit where Buddy's like, it never happened, so he's now just working in a fish and chip shop mm-hmm. in Querm, <laughs> which is where um, several references are made to where the girls from Querm's Ladies College like to buy their greasy food that they're not allowed to have at the school. And she's like, oh, I'm going to go and see him. And he'll be like him and not Buddy. He'll be Imp, mm. which is kind of cute. And I, and I, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of liked that because you don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to be friends? Or are they just going to have a cute little meet cute in a nice moment? And then that's it. Um, and we never find out, mm. which is, I think, the right way to handle yeah. it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And that brings us to the end. Mm. Um, now, traditionally, when we get to the end of the book, we like to talk about uh, our favorite bits of the book. We all got some favorite bits we want to read out. I feel like this was the first time that Duckman's Duck got questioned. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's the what first duck? time we meet Duckman as well. I don't yeah. think he's been in any of the earlier books. Certainly not any of the ones we've read on the podcast. Mm. That was great. That was very good. I enjoyed in, um, there's the run of puns, but at the end of it, um, Ridcully, who's been like putting his, his foot down on all of this, there's this bit. Ridcully breathed heavily. When your boots change by themselves, he growled. There's magic afoot? Ha <laughs> ha, good one, senior wrangler, said the dean. Like, <laughs> it's just very, it's a tidy pun. Uh, it's, it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there is magic on your foot. There's lots of nice little details in Death's house. This is one of my favorite ones when Susan's looking on his desk. There was even some sort of desk ornament. It was just a slab of lead with a thread hanging down one side and a shiny round metal ball on the end of the thread. If you raised the ball, it swung down and thumped into the lead just once. <laughs> I'm like, that is Death's idea of one of those Newton's Cradle office ornaments. I thought that was hilarious. And I like the recurring joke of the gym mistress shouting like about the ball game, but like, imagine her as a Valkyrie. Get some warrior, you bunch of fainting blossoms. She's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so rough. <laughs> I like the idea that Death's Domain doesn't quite do day normally. When the house had human inhabitants, it tended to keep a 26-hour day. Humans left to themselves adopt a longer diurnal rhythm than the 24-hour day, so they can be reset like a lot of little clocks at sunset. I just thought that was such a lovely idea, and I was like, yeah, I'd always love a couple of extra hours. That's true, isn't it? Like, Didn't they do like a sensory deprivation test where like they put you in complete... 26 hours, I yeah. think it is, yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. Oh, um, there's a lot of good descriptions of what the music with Roxin sounds like, but the first time um, Buddy's been possessed by it and he's playing the guitar, it says, the guitar screamed like an angel who had just discovered why it was on the wrong side. <laughs> Shades of good omens there. Mm. Um, I like, there was a brass plate screwed on the wall beside the door. It said, CV Cheesewaller, DM Unseen University, B Thou BF. It was the first time Susan had ever heard metal speak. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was great. Yeah. There's a lot of little, uh, I, I sometimes refer to them as drive-by gags because you almost don't notice them. It's just like, I'm, I'm going past with this paragraph, but here's a gag in the middle. <laughs> that one's kind of like that. Oh, there's a nice line about the library. The library didn't only contain magical books, the ones which are chained to their shelves and are very dangerous. It also contained perfectly ordinary books printed on commonplace paper in mundane ink. It would be a mistake to think that they weren't also dangerous just because reading them didn't make fireworks go off in the sky. Reading them sometimes did the more dangerous trick of making fireworks go off in the privacy of the reader's brain. Mm. I thought that was that was lovely. There's he always f- writes so well about libraries and books. There's a footnote that I really liked about how there was like a rat problem and so the patrician before veterinary had made a deal where you get money if you bring in the tail of a rat. 
and veterinary listens to all of this and there's like seems to be a lot of rats coming in and there's no money in the treasury and he goes Lord Veterinary had listened carefully while the problem was explained and had solved the thing with one memorable phrase, which said a lot about him, about the folly of bounty hunters, and about the natural instinct of Ankh-Morpurkians in any situation involving money. Tax the rat farms. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that is good. My favourite footnote, which had some... Actually, I've got two. I have have to have two footnotes because there's so many good ones. But I did enjoy this one because it was a local reference. Troll gambling is even simpler than Australian gambling. Mm-hmm. One of the most popular games is One Up, which consists of throwing a coin in the air and betting on whether it will come down again. <laughs> also, it's just like such a beautiful addition to uh, like what, because you know what that means in Ankh Morpork. Yeah. It's like you toss it up and then someone grabs it from the air and runs. Or yeah. it sticks to the roof of the oh, building. Exactly. Because there's something gross up there. Yeah. Or because of quantum. Or because of quantum, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I also like the one where they're talking about the word wizard. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Susan suddenly felt important. Wizards were rumoured to be wise. In fact, that's where the word came from, from the old wise ours. <laughs> Literally, one who, at bottom, is very smart. <laughs> so, so good. Very good. Oh, so good. Okay, we could be here forever. Has anyone got any, any more? I just like all the jokes about just drummers. As well. Yeah, those were particularly good. I remember my brother reading it and uh, he was in a band at the time. And when they ask, uh, they ask, like, what do you do once you've hit the rocks? And he says, what do you mean? It's like, hit him again. <laughs> um, like nature's drummer. Uh, I remember my brother saying, oh, God, it's, it's just so true. <laughs> I used to be a drummer in the band I was in at school. Right. And I love those jokes. My favorite one, it's not in the book, but my favorite drummer joke is, uh, how do you know when the stage is level? The drummer is drooling out of both sides of his mouth. <laughs> I'm like, that's so mean. And yet, and yet, uh, no, there's a lot of skill in drumming. That's why I was only a mediocre drummer, but I, I quite enjoyed it. I'd love to do it again. But mm. when they ask him, like, why did he do that bit in the music? Like, it needed that's the sound that needed to go in that bit of the song. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Oh, there's one more uh, that I quite liked that sums up Rid Cully's attitude to everything. The Archchancellor polished his staff as he walked along. It was a particularly good one, six feet long and quite magical. Not that he used magic very much. In his experience, anything that couldn't be disposed of with a couple of wax from six feet of oak was probably immune to magic as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. All right, well, it's probably time for some questions. We've got, so we got some great questions this, mm. uh, this month, so let's get into them. Liz, what, what do we got first? Lachlan Kingsford has sent us a question, and I'm just going to distill it down, which is basically, what do we imagine the guitar to look like? In my mind, it's a Stratocaster, um, except a 12-string. I'd accept it being like a Gibson Explorer too. What does it look like to you? So I'm going to first confess that I know nothing about guitars. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure, yeah. I'd imagine it looking like a fancy, maybe blue electric guitar, like a deep night blue, like a midnight blue. Some sparkly bits in it. I, I actually kind of imagined it being more a plain wood colour because it's so old. But I did imagine it in that classic Stratocaster shape mm. with the sort of pointy bits sticking out the top next to the neck. Again, all I know about guitars is from my brother. Oh, but though I could, should say that all that bit with um, in the uh, guitar shop and Gibson, uh, The Apprentice, mm. yeah. um, was really good. Uh, but yeah, so so I I don't have any particular image of it in my mind. Uh, it's it's an excellent question to the wrong people, I think. Mm. Unfortunately, I, well, you know, I've played enough rock bands. Oh yeah, uh, sorry, uh, I speak for I speak for us too. <laughs> uh, no, but all, I know a little bit about guitars. But yeah, no, I, I Stratocaster short, which is if you think electric guitar, mm. that is the default shape in your mind of what an electric guitar looks like. Yeah, yeah, that was totally it for me. 
but but yeah, not painted though. I just sort of imagined it as this lump of wood in that shape. Uh, and hmm. I'm not quite sure because I I was kind of I was actually thinking about it a bit when reading the book this time around because I'm like, well, it doesn't have any electronic bits, right? So what are the strings attached to and are there any knobs or levers? And I don't think it's described as having any. So, mm. yeah, I, I imagined it as sort of almost like a wooden child's toy version of uh, a Stratocaster. Interesting. Though maybe it's like blue in the same way that infinity is blue as death describes at the beginning. So. Oh, that's great. I love that bit. Mm. That's Yeah, that's interesting. Good point. I hadn't thought of that. Um, here's one from Sven Uckerman. What is your favorite grim squeaker joke in this book? Mine is the gerbil and the treadmill joke. Oh, yeah. I quite like when he first talks to Susan and she's like, he, he, surely if you're going to like try and get me to go on an adventure with you, you could try being a bit more adorable. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, so adorable. Yeah, well, yeah, but also an animate skeleton is kind of reduces the adorability a little bit, I think. Yeah, it was such a good pun on a joke about about children's books in general, like an almost self-awareness. Well, if this is going to be an Enid Blyton thing, then you need to be more like a like a dog or something, or a Famous Five thing, then you need to be more like a dog. Scabbering, eat your jammy buns. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the scene where I think Susan's talking to Albert and the grim squeak who's just slicing a bit of cheese off with his side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because he absolutely would. Get into it. Yeah. So here's one from Atchew and Sneezed. Is this the only book with a previously on the Discworld intro? Well, no. Uh, we've had uh, Lords and Ladies had uh, had the sort of fill-in of what happened in Witches Abroad. And I, I think that's the main one that happens before this. I feel like there's another one as well. that You don't really get it in Men at Arms. But it's Lords and Ladies, rare. yeah, has the... has the, and, But it's written out of character, whereas this one sort of feels like it's part of the book mm. the lords and ladies one is definitely terry just addressing the reader saying look normally these books are pretty standalone but you probably need to know a bit about what happened last time mm. and there's another one from a chew and sneeze is soul music the only true crossover there is often particularly with death cameos but i'm trying to think of another multi-character crossover except for raising steam well i mean i feel like most of the death books involve the wizards in one way or another so they're all kind of a crossover as those two series because Reaper Man is definitely both a death book and a wizard's book. Because it's difficult to define, like, they don't fit neatly into one of the, the categories like some of the watch books do. Mm. But I think that's a later question, actually, so we'll mm. come back to that. Okay, interesting. Um, this one's from Caro. I read Soul Music at an impressionable age and naturally had a sort of crush on Imp, so which Pratchett characters do slash did you thrust over? <laughs> um, well, look... Susan, come on. <laughs> She's the best. Not so much in this book, although I was about her age when I was reading it for the first time, so it was far less inappropriate. Um, but when she's older in Hogfather as well, hmm. and particularly when you see the Hogfather TV series, I mean, it's Michelle Dockery. She's Is she amazing. the one from Downton Abbey? Yeah. Huh. She's awesome. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. she's in Fingersmith as well. She's great. So I was a very asexual teen, and so I read these during that time. I just don't think that I had that crush feels, those, like, heart flutter feels over it. Also, I think it's interesting because Imp is such a particular trope of a character, um, and it's almost like a more hopeless version of um, Trent from Daria mm. um, or Jesse from Gilmore Girls. Um, and so it's like, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's funny getting feels for him because it's like, it fits within the lexicon of, of a particular niche of character. I'd still mm. choose Jesse over Dean. Dean is. 
bad and oh, every day. Yeah. Dean's yeah. the absolute worst and does not get credit for how bad he is. Oh no, no, yeah. yeah. He's and just so bad. My partner and I argue over whether Logan or Jesse was the better partner for Rory. But this is a different podcast yeah, that so we're veering we, into. I, <laughs> all right. I mean I, I was about to start that. getting into Veronica Mars <laughs> and uh, which team everyone's on. Uh but Logan, it's, there's only one answer. Uh, we disagree. Uh, we disagree. Uh, uh, neither of them, to be honest. Isn't if you have to choose from the small pool. Uh, no, yeah. don't make me do that. But yeah. speaking of, I didn't, I also did not thrust over any characters. There's just, I don't know. I think in terms of characters, I think I could have a nice life with, mm. um, probably either Moist or Vimes, which I think I is, was going to say Vimes, yeah. probably the closest that I came to it, mm. but like uh, Vimes after he's kicked the drinking habit. Yeah. Like later Vimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, when he's, he's, yeah, he's got himself in, yeah, yeah he's done some work on himself. <laughs> Yeah. What yeah, death? So that's, not, that's not so much like a crush. It's just like, who could I get along with for a long period of time? Who do I think would be a good companion? I reckon death. Yeah. Sure. I could date death. That's not... But do you have the thirst? I mean, that was what the question was about. <laughs> then I have zero thirst. Like, I think it's like, to me... I'm not the sure. books are like the ank, you can't drink from it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, fair. That's such, such a great way to put it. Um, I think, look, I just want to ask this question because I think it kind of <clears throat> segues nicely. Mm. This is from Zoe on the Discord. If there is any major failing of Pratchett, it's with queer representation. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of feminism, there's even intersectional feminism, but there's no queer representation. As a queer fan, when I read Between Mort and Isabel, there was an instant dislike, and everybody knows what that means in the long term. It makes me a little sad. I wish that Susan specifically had been allowed to be openly queer in the text and not just in my reading of the subtext, I mean, a lot of our readings of the subtext, but especially given the unsatisfactory romance between Mort and Isabel and Susan and Imp, are there any other instances where you felt that Pratchett could have been more queer? I feel like Carrot should be queer. Mm. Mm. I have this thing called the by default. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is all characters are queer until they state otherwise. Even if they're in straight-facing relationships, they're both bisexual until they specifically state that they're straight. And it's kind of inverting the yeah the heterosexual default that most people run by. And it's quite fun to blow people's mind with that. It's like, no, they're bisexual. Well, they haven't stated that they're straight, so they're bisexual by default. Yeah. But it definitely. I mean, it's it's the pitfall of most... Especially because when was he most like a huge bulk of it was nineties, right? Yeah. Mm. So this is like early mid nineties. This is this is sort of his peak period where he's writing, still writing two books every year. Yeah, and like it's just so uncommon to to have had that at all, uh, to have any queer representation in, in any sort of like. I mean, you look at Harry Potter and stuff. Mm. Uh, you can retcon all you like, J.K., but uh, it wasn't there in the books. Uh, so it's kind of worse to retcon it the way that. She but has. she's been doing it. Oh, it's fan fiction. She's writing fan fiction for her own books now. But she's doing it for herself, not for the fans. Yeah. And I feel like that's worse. Well, all fan fiction is for yourself, not for the is fans. <laughs> well, I mean, if you write fan fiction, it's for yourself. Okay. It's not to necessarily add something to the to the world. Yeah, you're answering your own questions or making your own headcanon yeah. onto the page. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I, cause I've, I, it's you bring up the, the by default, cause I was thinking about that when I was reading this question too, because I was like, well, how do we know? I mean, she's got this crush on Buddy, but doesn't mean she couldn't have a crush on half the girls in her school. Well, she seems yeah. like not the kind of person to have crushes mostly. And yeah. I think that's why she's so embarrassed about this in the few times that it comes up in the book, cause she's like, well, I'm having these feelings I didn't know I was going to have. And I mean, you could read into the text that, 
that's because until now she's only had those feelings about other girls at the school. Or so. she's just mm. been asexual and she's really confused by feelings full stop. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I do. I like, I understand both parts of that. I, it's so frustrating not having uh, queer representation. It's understandable given the time that it was written where the queer representation wasn't common. And I think certainly um, the stuff that, that Pratchett's thinking about the feminism and stuff is already being talked about in, in a fairly mainstream way. Um, yeah. So I think that I cut him some slack and I feel that in, um, in my bones as well. It's, it's frustrating, but understandable at the same time for me anyway. Mm. One of the things where it's difficult to read it in is often the characters don't meet other characters who they might have that relationship with. And I mean, I think it's fair to say that a lot of Pratchett books do not pass the Bechdel test. This one scrapes in by the skin of its teeth really. And it's really only those school ground conversations that Susan has at an all-girls school that get it over the line. But in most books, there's only one or two female characters of note. Mm. And so everybody's where, I mean, there's a lot of room there, I guess, for male queer characters. Mm. There's not as much room for female queer characters. I tell you what, Nanny Og, I'm pretty sure, is bisexual. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She's got to be pansexual. I mean, she doesn't care if you're a dwarf or a troll. Well, yeah. She hasn't ever gone there with trolls as far as we know, but... So bisexual is a, I use that as an umbrella term for all of the different things that come sure. underneath it. Um, not as a men and woman, but as a, just a, um, I use that in inverted quotes, uh, being non-binary myself. Um, but, uh, yeah. So Nanny Og, I think is the one character who is, it's nodded to that she has, has, you know, she's just a lusty character. Um, and she would have lots of thirsty characters to list from, the previous question. Yeah. That's yeah. True. Oh, yeah. She'd just list, list just so she She would pull out a book. She'd pull out a notebook with like ticks and crosses next to the name or like <laughs> a, 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 the to do list, she would call <laughs> oh, it. Oh, no. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, have we got some more questions, Liz? I was going to do the pronounced Mort joke again, but no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, this one's from Sir Sarah Dudley. Uh, can you come up with some punny Pratchett-esque band names of modern bands since the book was written? Magnificent Herobs is my offering, Supergrass, but um, there's also Antarctic Apes, which is Arctic Monkeys, The Niles for the Amazons, and Get This for Take That. <laughs> Get This is very good. Yeah, that's my favorite. That and is I'm, a good one. I don't know if I can beat that because I've been pondering it throughout the podcast and I was kind of like, I don't know, Ugly and the Crab for Bell and Sebastian. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty good. Because like my favorite that. band. <laughs> Are they? Na- they're not named after the. They're named after the the book series rather than the like the French, aren't they? Bell and Sebastian. I don't know. I've got. Uh, okay, so this one's. I'll spell it out for you first because it's kind of only funny on page. So I've got three. I was thinking about this as well. B o n n y, b e a r, which is Bonnie Bear. Mm. <laughs> Like Bonavere. Yeah, like Bonavere. Very good. Um, and then I've got uh, those ramped up sheep. Which is the mountain goats. Oh <laughs> my god. That's great. <laughs> I should have got that one. That's gold. And that's uh, blood. That's uh, blood. <laughs> yeah, that's pure blood. Pure blood here on the, on the podcast. Uh, and the last one is Little John Dollar. Little John Dollar. Johnny Cash. Oh, oh. Oh, that's nice. He's very good. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I uh, oh, I just thought of one and now I've, now I've lost it. It was because yours was so good. Yeah, I had the same <laughs> thing. And I was like, it's just blown straight out of my mind. <laughs> I, like, I feel like there'd be a good one for the bare naked ladies. Mm. But also, on the other hand, like, bare naked ladies just sounds like what a Discworld band would be called. Yeah, <laughs> so totally. You don't need to change it. The condiment lasses. Condiment lasses. The Spice Girls. Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay, that's good. Thank I'll you. pay that. The Shade Boys. Oh, the Shade Lads because it's the Backstreet Boys. Oh. Like the Shades. Oh. Would they, 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 they would have been oh. around then. No, it would be like the the Alley Lads. Yeah. The Alley Lads, the Backstreet Boys. Mm. I like that. Yeah. Look, I don't think I could beat yours. Yeah, they were, yeah <laughs> the, the ramped good. up ones. Those, those like, ramped up sheep. Those ramped up sheep is... Is yeah, solid glod as we say. <laughs> so we've got another one from Sven Uckerman. Uh, how many music jokes do you count? I'm just going to quickly nip this one in the bud and say too many to count because it just keeps on coming and it's so good. Yeah, totally not. And, and also, we're all aware that we're missing stuff that we don't mm. we don't know because they're quite subtle. If you want to look up a list of them, the best place to look is the annotated Pratchett file, which we often mention. Um, and we try not to just regurgitate stuff that's in there, but yeah, there's all of them are explained in there, so get in there. And there's another one that follows on from a previous one, which is which series do you count this book, City, Wizards or Death or, or other? Well, I, I really think, well, I don't, I wouldn't make a, a series out of the City ones. I think Ankh-Morpork Pork features in so many of the books that it's just a constant feature. And when it's not in Ankh-Morpork, Pork, that, that's more unusual. <laughs> that mm. makes it more of a series in, in itself. But uh, I think it's definitely a death book mm. in as much as death is always not really in his books. Uh, and it's definitely a Wizards book as well. Controversial choice. What about the Dibbler series, This Moving Pictures? Oh. That's interesting. Mm. I like that as an idea. Because, like, Dibbler is a manager. And there is definitely a thematic series of stuff from our world going into the disc world in one way or another, which mm. is Moving Pictures, Soul Music, Reaper Man probably would go in there as well. Here's one from Captain Redup. What's the best band pun in the whole book? You had a good one, didn't you? That was your favorite band. Oh, yeah. The They Might Be Giants one, which yeah. is uh, We're Certainly Dwarves, <laughs> uh, which I thought was great. I really love that. There was also a U2 one, wasn't there? Was oh, there? yeah. Yeah. And, and, and us. And us. Or something. I didn't get that either. I just, oh, and, you. Was, okay. and you. And you. And they spell it with an ampersand and a capital U. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That yeah. was great. I only got that on the second reading. Yeah. So many Easter eggs in there. So we have one from Melissa, also from the Discord, who asked, uh, is Gloria Thog's daughter the first dwarf that we know of to be identified as female? She has a girl name, goes to an all-girls private school, plaits her beard with ribbons. Uh, later on, when Cheery Littlebottom is introduced, why is she so outrageous to the dwarf sensibility? Dwarfs have genders. They just don't consider it very important until it comes to making small dwarves. We have heard a bit about uh, Carrot's girlfriend from the mine. Gloria's away at... A private school in Quirm, and mm. I think that's probably not an accident. Like, if she was showing very definite signs of femininity, that was maybe disturbing some folks in the dwarf minds. I think maybe even the inverse. I think that they were like, "Oh, well, this is done, so we'll send our child off to this girls' school." And when she was there, she expressed more of her femininity because she's outside of the context that represses it. Mm. Also, she wouldn't have done well in a girls' school if she had been repressing that femininity. She would have been picked on. So I think that there's maybe a bit of a chicken and egg situation, where it's a little column A, a little column B, perhaps, because obviously the parents would have to know the gender of the child in order to send her away to an all-girls school. Yes. Mm. She's separate from mainstream dwarf society, so maybe they don't, see this from her it's not something she shares with them because she knows it'll be frowned upon mm. yeah so i guess that makes sense and but cheery is 
doing it out in public. Mm. You know, she's a member of the Watch. She's hanging out in Ankh-Morpork. There's a big dwarf population in Ankh-Morpork. Despite the fact that they're modern dwarves who live in a city, they're also quite old-fashioned dwarves who believe in the old dwarfy ways or their idea. I think one of the clever things about it is that it's the dwarves in the city who are most up in arms about it because they have fixed in their mind the idea of what traditional dwarf values are because Mm. they've been separate from the origin culture for a while and they haven't seen it evolve or change. So, yeah, I think there's an aspect of that happening too. Mm. So this one's from Danny Sag from Facebook. Have you seen the cartoon? What are your thoughts on the adaptation? And are you bigger than cheeses? <laughs> uh, it's great. If you haven't heard it, you can still buy the soundtrack online to the to the um, the TV version, and it's phenomenal. Like, I think it doesn't get enough props. Like, the way that they recreate the sound of so many different rock bands for the bands with the band with rocks in. Uh, and they, they obviously have to write and record all this music that in the book is only ever alluded to and described in very vague terms. I mean, there's great, like I say, great ways to describe what the music with Roxanne sounds like, but he never tells you what the actual songs are or what the lyrics are. And they had to write all that stuff for the TV show. And it's brilliant. Um, so I, I highly rate the soundtrack, at least. I've never watched the entire actual show, but I, I remember quite liking the bits of it that I saw. It's weird that I've never really tracked those down. Although I have watched the Weird Sisters one now. I don't find it strange. I remember I've played the computer game and I think I have seen the film, the, um, the thing, the animation of it. But it, to have something that is so lives in your imagination and then have it presented to you as this is the interpretation of someone else. It's such a precarious thing to do and it so easily goes wrong. Mm. And you see that with so many adaptations where the adaptation is either a completely leaning into and being of its own thing. Like Anne with an E, a lot of people didn't like it because they had Anne of Green Gables in their head and it's like trashing this, this, um, this nostalgic factor that they had. But it is an incredible show in its own right. And so I think it's perfectly normal just to not remember it because the writing is so strong in the books. It kind of just steamrollers over it to be honest. So I have seen it, but I don't remember it at all. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm quite excited about the watch series that keeps getting talked about. Cause it's quite clearly not going to be a direct adaptation of any of the books. It's going to be its own thing drawing on those characters and maybe they'll use elements of plots in this show, but it seems like it's going to be more a police procedural set in Ankh-Morpork, which is what an awesome idea. Mm. <laughs> like, it's so great. Good. Yeah. Mm. And like, I think Pratchett would love that as well. Yeah. I think Pratchett would be all over that. And I mean, it's, it's I'm really excited to see Good Omens because mm. Good Omens was written collaboratively. Mm. And so, and obviously Neil Gaiman's still alive. Um, and so uh, it's a very different beast, but to try and convert something that is so strong and in book form into, into a sort of show, it's, it was an impossible task, I think. Mm. Hmm. This one is also from Facebook from Nicola Minchum. If you owned one of the magic dimension traveling stores, what would yours sell? Oh man. Uh, I think board games. <laughs> Mine would sell board games. And so of course there'd be a copy of Jumanji in there. Yeah. I was going to uh, say, but also a whole bunch of other weird magical board games that do different things. I mean, and that is, that is kind of a bit of a genre because they did that other one. What's the space one? Serpents and steps would be there. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. 
Um, what's the what's this, but what's the space uh, Jumanji movie? It's called Zathura or something like Legend that. Legend of Terabithia. No, that's something else. <laughs> no, but there's there's like another movie which is like basically this, and I think it's written by the same guys. Zathura. Zathura, yeah, and it's like a space themed right. board game where the, their house gets transported into space, it's, which is obviously on brand for me anyway. Yep. But uh, yeah, I I think board games. How about you? I so when I was in university, I would go through all of the uh, secondhand stores and look at furniture, particularly mid-century furniture, and then I would take it home and I would sell it <laughs> on Trade Me because I'm from New Zealand. So I'd resell it on Trade Me for a profit uh, because they didn't know how to pick good furniture, and so I did this a couple of times and earned some some bucks that way. So probably like furniture, or, furniture or clothes, I would say. Nice. Not that that would have any. I don't know if that'd have any relevance in um, the disc world. I don't, think, don't know if it would translate well in the same way that guitars have in this case or even board games in the Jumanji sense. No, I think you could have, you'd have magical, like, couches of the gods. Yeah, maybe. End table of a god. Yeah. That actually ends things. Yeah, or maybe, mm. like, there's a book about architectures. Uh, so, sure. Yeah, why not? I'm into it. Danny Sag offered a good answer for me, which was um, puns. But <laughs> can yes. you can't put a value on puns. And, and I don't know if this is because I'm looking at a picture of like a hundred dogs right now, but I think mine would sell the perfect animal companion for you. Oh, mm. magical animal shop. Yeah. Pet so like shop. The I like exact, it. But you don't buy them. You come in and it's just, it's just like, it's like Ollivander's one shop. Yeah. It's the, the correct pet for you. Yeah, or and animal it, companion for you. I, well, it'd be more like animal rescue because, like, if it's if it's one of those shops, all those animals have come from somewhere else. It's not mm. like a cruel puppy farm pet shop. It's more like a rescue shelter for mystical animals. And they're not there all the time. Pretty much, like you come in and suddenly it conjures up the right one from wherever they are that needs your you the right oh. pairing, and then you you leave together. So That's like it's great. just kind of yeah. There's so many that could be in there too. Elliot from Pete's Dragon would be in there. Toothless. Toothless would be in there. Um, Lassie yeah. or an equivalent. Or Laddie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The littlest Good hobo boy. would probably hang out there for a while. Yeah, That's it would great. just be the right. Sabrina. Uh, I mean. Salem. Salem from Sabrina. Oh, the, Salem. New, the new one or the sassy talking one? The sassy talking one. He's not, but I also like that. Anyway, I have, I have a lot to say about Sabrina that is positive, but it's not. For this show, <laughs> okay. Take another app. No. <laughs> we need to do a spin-off podcast where we just talk about other things, don't we, Liz? Yes. Get them, Gilmore, get like Gilmore Girls and Sabrina. Yeah. <laughs> one negative comment is Harvey should be written out of the new series because he is super boring and adds nothing. Oh yes. Thank you for sending in your questions. Remember, you can always send us questions about any of the books that we're going to discuss um, using the hashtag or just replying to us on social media, uh, and we love to hear from you. We also love hearing from our supporters on Discord. Thank you so much for the questions you sent in and thank you so much for supporting us. Uh, if you'd like to support us and help make sure that we keep making enough episodes to cover every single Terry Pratchett book, which is still about another five years <laughs> worth, um, you can do that via our website, pratchettpodcast.com. Just click on the support us page and you can find all the details of how you can help us out there. Um, but this brings us to the end of the episode Fury, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. Now, you have recently published your first book. I have. Uh, it's called I Don't Understand How Emotions Work, and it is about the corruption of memory and time. Uh, and it sort of asks the question if who we are is based on our memories, but our memories are changing constantly, then what does that say about the integrity of our identity? 
and it relates to getting diagnosed um, with gender dysphoria to get access to treatment. So it's sort of a very strong trans narrative. Um, but there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot in there. And, and I've been actually pretty blown away by uh, the breadth of people that it's spoken to. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been interesting. It's been a wild trip. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's really great. And you didn't just write it, you illustrated it yourself as well. Yes, I did. In fact, when I, when I first, so I pitched, um, I got funding from the city of Melbourne to do it and I was telling my friend about it and he said, so you're writing it. I said, yes. And he said, so you're illustrating it as well. I said, yeah. And he paused and he said, so there's a reason that there are a lot of names on the front of comic books <laughs> and it sort of went over my head at the time, but now I'm like, mm-hmm, mm, yes, there are. Cause it was a lot of, a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, I did all of the things very auteur, uh, little project. But now that's out in the world and people can get a copy, where mm-hmm. can they go if they want to find out more about your work or get themselves a copy of I Don't Understand How Emotions Work? Yeah, so if you'd like a copy, uh, you can head to furymakes.bigcartel.com. Um, and if you'd just like to check out the other stuff that I do or what have you, then you can head to furywrites.com. Great. Well, I know I'll be heading there because I couldn't make it to the book launch, so I'll mm. get a copy of the book. Sounds so good. Now, uh, we've, we've had busy, Liz, haven't we? Yes. We've been all over the shop. Uh, one of the places we've been recently was the Australian Discord Convention, which has come up a few times in the discussion this episode. And while we were there, we recorded a special live episode where we discussed the short story Troll Bridge with very special guest Tansy Rayner Roberts. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be, or an ear. Keep an ear out for that. Don't keep an eye out for it <laughs> or you won't hear anything. That was quite exciting. And we're also hopefully, uh, speaking of our supporters as I was before, releasing our first supporter-only content mm. very soon. Um, it's been a little while coming, but we've been working on it. We've got some cool stuff. Um, if you want to hear it, you need to be a supporter, so so get on board. Um, I uh, I recently um, have started another podcast because... What? <laughs> why would you not have more? Um, Night Terrace, the audio comedy show that we made, is going to be on BBC Radio 4 Extra. It starts on the 21st of April, so it'll have been a few episodes in by the time you, this comes out. Um, and we've made a little after show where we discuss it. We've got Vaya Pashos from the Neighbours podcast, Neighbours, which is great. If you like Neighbours, get onto <laughs> it. Uh, but she's our host and she's chatting with members of cast and crew about the show. That's called On the Terrace. You can find it at nightterrace.com where you can also find information about the show itself. I also have a gig coming up, which I feel like I should plug because it's happening in May. So it'll happen a, about a week or two after this episode is released. I'm going to be doing my Dungeons & Dragons live comedy show, Dungeon Crawl, at Werribee Open Plains Zoo, where they've currently got animatronic dinosaurs. So we're doing a dinosaurs-themed dungeon crawl. It's going to be lots of fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's on uh, May the 19th out at Werribee Open Plains Zoo. So if you are in Melbourne and uh, you like dinosaurs and zoos and Dungeons & Dragons, or even just one of those three things, uh, come along and see some great improvised comedy. It's going to be a fun time. Now, Liz, we need to talk about our next episode. It is coming up soon. Hmm. Well, um, grab a Red Bull because Pratchett brings you wings. <laughs> That's true. We're going to be finally finishing off the Bromeliad. I'm so excited. Uh, I love this book so much. I love all three of them, but it's going to be fun to to finish a little series. Yeah, it's just like wraps it up nicely in a bow. Yeah, something we won't be doing with the Discworld for many years to come, <laughs> which is great. We're we're enjoying the journey. Um, so please join us next time for wings. If you have any questions or queries, or Paul McCartney jokes. Yes, get on board. Uh, that will be episode 20. So please uh, ask us questions with the hashtag Pratchat20. 20. 20 episodes, Liz. 
Yes, it's certainly more than five. It's a bit of a master. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've lasted a while. Uh, and that's all due to you listening in. So thank you very much. So until next time, squeak. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Fury. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat19. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Star Trek podcast Rediscovery and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.